thank you very much for visiting me on a very special episode of Merged Worlds. Uh, today uh, will be the last episode of this chapter, for good or bad. It will be the last episode of this chapter, and then um, we have some setup stuff to do moving us into next week when a brand new story of these characters will continue. So, uh, pretty excited about it. Um, a little nervous about moving into stuff no one's ever heard before, but uh, overall, I think it should be a lot of fun. Hello, Miss Ashley and Mr. Jim. Good day, and thank you for attending. Uh, two of my very loyal fans. <laughs> we played some Dungeons & Dragons this morning, actually, and had quite a good time. Lots of lettuce involved. So, uh, as normal, I'm going to do just a little bit of a brief recap on where we left off, and then um, we are going to move forward with today's story. So, uh, where we left off... Oh, we would miss I appreciate that, Ashley. Um, so where we left off, uh, our heroes were inside of a giant underwater entity named Flonatia that had been hibernating for a thousand years. It was so large that inside of it, um, different races had taken up a living um, and became their homes where they spent all their time. Um, they had to go inside because they'd made a deal with a certain dragon turtle uh, to retrieve three pearls. There are three pearls um, the size of a basketball and a half. Maybe a smidge bigger. There's three of them inside of it that it, it makes much like a, an oyster. And these three pearls have uh, very, very strong magical capabilities. They're not a magic item or artifact themselves, but they boost magical spells so they're very, very uh, rare and very, very valuable. And there's three inside. And if they can return all three, the turtle will lend them a magical trident that they need in order to defeat the, or hopefully <laughs> calm down the giant creature, uh, Euroclodon, which is under control of a bunch of were-sharks. If this is your first episode and that's the first thing you've heard of this, that is probably some of the most confusing things you've ever heard in your life. You're like, where what? Who the wish? Pearl, huh? <laughs> so if this is your uh, first episode, I appreciate you coming by. Anyways, uh, this is episode number 60. I've been doing this for almost a year and three quarters at this point. Well over a year and a half. Uh, at over 160 hours of story. While inside, they came across a bunch of humans that had been surviving inside their ship sank. Uh, some type of water creature put, took them there, because it's the closest place and there's any oxygen. And they've been hanging out inside there for 12 years. Didn't even know the merge happened. Led by a guy named Jarek, who was the first mate of that ship. Um, Jarek is traveling with them at this point, guiding them to where they, he knows the Polonia pretty well. You know, he, he and his people stay hidden as much as possible because the three different underwater races that live in there are all evil and all bigger, stronger, better armed and have more magic. So they just try to live on what they can um, trying to get through. So they just finished getting the pearl from the heart chamber where they had defeated a underwater vampire. Which, yes, those exist. Uh, that had been living inside the heart chamber, basically is soaking up 
all the blood that's in that chamber over a year, hundred, couple hundred years itself. So it was very bloated and powerful um, and became quite a uh, chunky monkey. <laughs> they had to fight him, but were victorious. Uh, Darsh had to break one of his javelins to do so. I am excited a little bit later in the story. I'm going to mention uh, a specific outside the story event, uh, kind of. Um, I talk a lot about how I write the stories to go away, but always have a backup. Um, and we're today we're going to touch on a spot that went completely different than I planned on it going. Uh, for the better, to be honest. And I know I get asked about that a lot. So uh, when we get to that point, I'll mention it specifically. So they defeated uh, Valia, the underwater vampire. And now they have to make their way to the stomach chamber. The stomach chamber is, of course, at the bottom. Because, you know, that's where stomachs are. I don't make the rules. <laughs> I actually do. Uh, but his stomach is at the bottom. Now, they have... Jarek said he knows approximately where that is, but he's never been there. Um, it is not cool. It's dangerous. And uh, that area is filled with Kuatoa. So Kuatoa are fish people. Imagine uh, humanoids with thin arms and legs, but their heads are piranha. Uh, very long, jagged teeth. Uh, they're very evil. Very not nice people. But uh, they're an underwater race. All three of the races that live in here can swim and breathe underwater, right? Uh, the Naga, the Kuatoa, and the... I can never pronounce that other word. Shawin. 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 I can't pronounce it. But the other fish people. <laughs> they're all fish people of some kind. So getting to the stomach takes a little while because uh, they have to try to go as roundabout as possible. And Jarek's like quite open about that. It's like, I, the direction I'm taking you should avoid most everything. It's going to add hours to our trip, but it's going to allow us to more likely get through with as little incidents as possible. Uh, Jarek clearly knows more about this. They trust him. Nor is not to. <laughs> I'm sure humans would like to get out of here. They're in rough shape when they showed up. So the stomach chamber itself... Uh, at the lower level, because remember, there's that central chamber. And they have to come out of this central chamber, and that's where they've made a diversion just to get in there. So getting out is going to be a little bit harder, and at this point, they've decided that they're going to go back to the old playbook, um, and they're going to try to have Dandy sneak through while they're in a chest of holding. It's a huge gamble. Jarek is definitely not comfortable with it, but um, it's the best shot they've got at this point. Uh, they did rest and refill spells and heals and things of that nature uh, when they had the opportunity um, after the last fight. So they are at okay levels again. Dandy has to sneak through. Dandy's very good. Uh, she doesn't have much problem at all. And as long as she's, you know, as small as she is, it's very often hard for any of the immune system to consider her a threat. You know what I mean? She's not really registering. She's not taking damage. She's not building buildings. She's not fighting. She's just a little thing trying to sneak by. Um, and she's very successful. She manages to get through the room. Because where she's going this time is a lot less of a run. Like where they had to go to get into the tunnel, they were coming from further away. But now, like imagine they kept, they're they coming out of the tunnel. They originally, to the right-hand side, on your side, right-hand side is where they came from. They had to come a long distance to get in there. But the stomach chamber, they just have to go out the other direction and go a short distance to get into that tunnel. And it just leads down to the lower area. The hardest part is the entrance to it itself, uh, because that's where there's basically very often a three-way fight going on between the Kuatoa, uh, the fish people on this level, and the immune system itself. Dandy uses that diversion relatively successfully. Uh, 
uh, and manages to get through without having to do any combat. Um, so they make it past them, and everybody gets out of the chest of holding. So they manage to make it into the tunnel, but the tunnel itself is going to be a problem because the Kuatoa, um, while they occasionally come up and, and throw a couple attacks, they're pretty entrenched down in the stomach. Um, and from what Jarek says, rarely do the other types really try to go down there. Uh, the stomach area, which he's never actually fully seen, um, from what they can tell, is probably one of the most dangerous places inside of Flonatia. At least by the way that the other people, the other races act. Kuatoa being the only ones who really go down there at all. Um, sorry if I sound like I'm yawning. I'm actually trying to stifle a sneeze. I've got a sneeze that wants to come out, but it won't, and it's been bugging me for like five minutes. <laughs> so I apologize. I'm going to think I'm about to sneeze, and then I don't. So as they're making it lower and lower down this tunnel, they're finding that the the area, remember it's been very, it's stomachy, right? But I mean, this, it's stomachy in a way that it's, uh, you know, same type of lining and hard, tough, skin and bone that they've seen all the way through. Um, but it starts to get a bit more porous. <laughs> no worries. I bet one silver piece that they encounter stomach acid. Huh. Interesting. We'll see if that bet is successful. <laughs> um, so on the lower level, it's the smallest of the three, and that's what they have to fight their way through, and that's where the Ketua, to get to the stomach. So I want to separate that. The stomach and the lower level are two separate things. The lower level is where the Kuatoa live. They have to get through that to get to the stomach. Um, as they get to this area, they find that it's very porous, sponge-like, if you will. And while the holes, most of them are, are too small for someone to climb in, um, it does make travel easy and hard. When they have to climb something, it's super easy. There's lots of holes to grab on. As they're walking along things, it sucks because you're trying not to step in a bunch of holes. Um, and this level is also full of a bunch of pools of water. Um, and other liquids, it says. Um, it's in these pools that the Kuatoa live, Jarek says. This is as far, far down as he's ever made it. It's down to where the stomach is. This is before the other races kicked in, which was post-merge, which he didn't know. They live in the pools, and there's tunnels that link the pools and such. The pools are large. It's a small area compared to the other two, but it's still a big area, if that makes sense. It's like a small town area, if you would. Um, while this area has minimal constructions, they do have to deal with a type of stomach fluid. Uh, this is where I've taken a traditional monster from Dungeons & Dragons and converted it to fit my needs. So, a somewhat stomach fluid, not exactly stomach acid, but kind of stomach acid, except they are in the form of gelatinous cubes. If you're not familiar with a gelatinous cube, it's a cube, and it's gelatinous. Allow me to explain. Um, it's literally an acidic thing normally. That's what it's, and basically, its big thing is it tries to get you to walk in it. A lot of times, uh, they'll go in hallways or doorways and just sit there. Because they're mostly transparent in a dungeon, a lot of people will walk right into them or get close enough that they can kind of reach out and pull them in. And inside, it's very hard to get out. You get no grip. You're like floating in air. and the, the, Literally, it's like swimming in water, but you get no traction. And the, um, the insides will just eat you away. 
until you're dead, and then eat the rest of you. So very often inside a gelatinous cube, you'll, the only thing you'll find are metal. It's one of the only things that it doesn't digest. Uh, it'll just float around inside of it. So you see a floating ring in the middle of a hallway. Uh, you might want to be careful before you walk forward to grab it. So he, Jarek tells him that. He's like, I've seen those. I know there's these things. And, and so as they're making their way down, they've had to, they have to be very sneaky to skip past several patrols, but they're, uh, the patrols don't really seem to be looking for anyone, at least no one their size. The Kuatoa, while they are the same size as our heroes and such, are the smallest of the three races. So they're not really looking for little people. You know what I mean? They're looking for larger enemies, the Naga and the Shaun. Um, but So they're able to usually skip past most of these. Now, there are several different types of things they had to deal with coming through here. Uh, one is they did have to deal with one scout party. They did, uh, unfortunately, get their attention. It was four Kuatoa scouts. The scouts themselves were pretty good warriors. Um, our heroes, it took some combat, took several rounds, and but they did take a few hits. Uh, they still outmatched them. Our heroes did, definitely, four of them. Um, but the Kuatoa used very, very long thin spears they're hooked on the end um, and it was a combat like they've never dealt with before because the Kuatoa aren't trying to get in melee and it's hard to get in swords reach when you have a super sharp really long thin spear stabbing at your face and your stomach by someone who's physically strong this is thin then you know it's not like a but it's you know it's still sharp and still sturdy um, and so that was their biggest issue was getting in close enough um what really started to help there is Dandy started tossing daggers. They're in an area where she wasn't afraid she'd lose her daggers, so she started tossing daggers, which were easy to get past the javelin, or the, uh, the spears, to the point that they had to try to go in on Dandy to stop the daggers from coming. And that's kind of what allowed the Darsh and Mercy to kind of break in through there. Uh, Darsh's longer reach, by far, uh, was the biggest asset in that fight, because... His reach, he's still way taller than the Kuatoa, and his reach with the sword is almost as long as their spears. Uh, Mercy did not get a lot of combat in this fight, because she just couldn't get close enough. And she spent a lot of her time defending uh, the others, like um, Dandy and Artemis. Because again, these are long spears, they can be thrown as well. There's a little bit of that chucking those at them. They're successful in that fight. Soon after that, they, they came across a situation where they had to go through the gelatinous cubes. Uh, not, like, physically through them, but they had to go through an area where there were several of them. This was a section... They had a choice. They could try to go through the section and get past the several of these, which were large and slow, um, but very damaging if they, got, if they got caught by them. Or they could go closer to the Kuatoa, which had a better chance of finding more of them. They chose to go this way. Um, had they gone the other way, they would have run into a war party that had a shaman on, along with them that would have caused a lot more problems uh, than a regular scouting party. But in this situation, they decided to go through the gelatinous cube section. So she was like tanking. Yes, very much so, Punk Buster. Great example. Yes, she was very much doing that. Trying to let Dandy stand behind her shield and toss stuff and block for Artemis the healer. Um... So, the gelatinous cubes 
were something that they'd never had to deal with before. Surprisingly, as common as they are as monsters, I'd never had them fight a gelatinous cube. And here was a version that was my own custom. So even then, they didn't know if it worked like a regular gelatinous cube. They were larger. Um, and so they had to get through there. The thing with gelatinous cubes, slashing them with a sword doesn't do a whole lot. Bonking them with the Morningstar, relatively unaffected. Your weapons... The blades ones are a little bit harder to get stuck in there, but a blunt weapon could even get stuck. You could hold on to it. So if they did have to enter combat, they needed to have a way to do that. So a lot of this they learned from Jarek. So as they entered that area, they had to do something that they hadn't in that before, and that was light some torches. Um, Flonacia as a whole has been relatively vision-friendly, right? These humans have been hanging out for years. They don't have anything that gives them information. Valencia glows a lot inside. Her blood is, uh, well, her, his. I mean, I never said what gender it was. didn't matter if it even had one. Flonacia was, um, its blood it had quality to it, that glow. That's why all the chambers glowed with that light when they went in there. There were spots that were darker than others, um, but majority of the time, everybody could see okay. Um... Just bright enough that infravision didn't work, and just dark enough that you can't see your regular vision. Uh, I wanted it to be you know, a little challenging. So they decide they're going to have to light fire. Uh, fire is one of the few things, even though the gelatinous cube is relatively liquid. Imagine jello. Heat will have the effect as it would on jello. It can cause it to melt it, now, cause it to liquefy some. And uh, if they do enough damage, it's possible the thing will literally flee. Um, this is not part of the immune system. It's a thing that literally rumbles around and chews stuff up. That's its job. And a lot of things that it chews up and such, and unlike a regular gelatinous cube that just digests it forever, it crunches it down, breaks it down easier, and then kind of secretes it, which then becomes an ooze which seeps into the porous ground and helps um, provide sustenance for flonation. One of the two ways that it gets sustenance We'll find the other one in a minute. So they had to fight a gelatinous cube thing. And uh, there was a chance that they'd get... There were three of them they had to get by. They had a chance to sneak by. They failed on their last roll. And so the last one they actually had to fight. They made it past the first two. In this fight, Mercy, basically, is carrying a flaming torch. And so is Darsh. They'd gone into the chest of holding, got out some of the sturdiest stuff they had. They always have lamp oil on them. So they got dry cloth and lamp oil. It's easy for them to make fire. And I'm sure you can imagine, fire is not something you find a lot inside the stomach of a giant sea creature. So it's not something that anything inside would normally be used to dealing with. Dandy had her dagger of flame, um, which is does overall actually more damage than their torches do. But she's got to get a lot closer to use it. And that was her concern. She sure as heck wasn't going to throw the dagger at it because it might put the flame out and it might just sit there floating in the middle of it forever and she never gets her dagger back. So there was some concern. Um, the battle itself went pretty well. It was just a very long fight. Um, because Darsh and Dandy, or sorry, Darsh and Mercy were not doing their regular amount of damage because they weren't wielding their regular weapons. They were using just a, a very sturdy chunk of wood lit on fire. 
and Jarek had several more and was helping, and Artemis had a couple, and every so often she would light another one and either hand it to one of them because theirs went out or broke because there was a chance of that. I told them there's a chance. You hit this thing, you may do damage to it, but you melt it some, it could put it out. So their plan was to have Artemis in the back, literally with not even healing, just hanging, have, carries in, they carry in a bunch of them when they're sneaking through, and if they get caught, drop them, and she starts lighting them and handing them, and occasionally when she has a free moment, tossing one if it gets close enough. Um, so it didn't... Eat, their attacks weren't doing a lot of damage, but they were effective. Um, the hardest part for them is, regardless of whether it was doing damage or not, the gelatinous cube doesn't care. It still keeps coming. Um, now, not suicidal, but I mean, it comes in, and they put the torch out, and they burn it. That section will literally shrink away, but the other part of it might wrap around and then smack them. Uh, and it attempts to grab them and pull them in. And that was the second problem they ran into, is occasionally it would grab somebody. And somebody had to grab them and pull them back out before the gelatinous cube sucked them in. Um, the gelatinous cube is quick at what it does. not <laughs> super quick. You're going to be very uncomfortable for a while. But you'll start taking pretty relatively serious damage fast. So, of course, as was expected, Dandy, trying to help by stabbing in, is the one that got snagged twice. Uh, the first time wasn't too bad. Mercy was able to grab her and pull her out. Dandy took a probably what was one of the worst points of damage up to that point. Because, like, I think her arm and part of her shoulder and chest got pulled in, and Mercy grabs her and pulls her back out. So she was, like, somewhat burned on there. Um, again, surface-level burns, uncomfortable, nothing horrendous. The second time, though, it grabbed Dandy and it pulled her three-quarters of the way in. Uh, she failed two rolls that Dandy normally doesn't fail. Uh, Dandy's incredibly dexterous. So for her to, like, literally, you know, she has to get 19 or below and she rolled a 20 kind of thing. Uh, because in second edition, ability scores you roll under. So, just saying. Um, so, she gets sucked three-quarters of the way in. Uh, Darsh, the only person with any type of range, has to literally come up and punch into the thing and grab her and pull it back out while trying not to be pulled in himself. Uh, his, he was strong enough to pull her out, but uh, she was out of the fight for several rounds after that because Artemis had to heal her. and Just her whole body was sizzling, if you will. And it wasn't just a matter of... You can't throw water on it. That doesn't work. And healing her don't, won't work because the stuff on her skin is just going to keep eating her. Healing her doesn't eat it. So they had to get this stuff off. Um, and Jarek had kind of prepared that. They had some blankets out kind of thing. It's, it's the only thing they had. They don't carry towels, of course. They had blankets, and so Artemis is trying to help Dandy wipe the stuff off of her skin while Dandy's chucking off as much clothes as she can. Um, just to get it off, well, you know, they can do that. They all have spare sets of clothes, so that's not a problem. And they've all seen each other naked enough times that they don't give a rat's ass, to be honest with you. Um, have, for the, I can't tell you how many times Darsh has been in a situation where all he's wearing is a loincloth because he's in a gladiator arena or something. A loincloth doesn't hide a lot, especially you start flipping around or something. So uh, everybody here is quite comfortable with seeing each other naked. So that was not something that we had to worry about. Um, no shyness in this group. After the fight, very often. After the fight, when it's all over and they realize there's four NPCs that have never been there before... And they're like, ah, I shouldn't be naked in front of these three kids. 
or, oh, I shouldn't be naked in front of this old lady or old man or whatever the case may be. We've saved the orphans and, oh, I'm naked. Like, it's one of those situations where they just have to be very, very careful. So, you know, they never, they never think about it till the battle's over. It's, I've got to survive and then I'll worry about it later. Pride heals. So, they, uh, they had to deal with some of that. But sure enough, the, you know, they, they managed to burn this one down enough that it literally fled. Um, it's, again, a lot of these things in here, unlike a regular gelatinous cube, which is animal-like instinct, it's not super smart or anything. These are even less intelligent. These are programmed. Uh, think of them as they perform a specific function for Flonasia. And they know what they're supposed to do. It's not often they come across, number one, a lot of things that are going to fight back in here, other than the Kuatoa. The Kuatoa know enough to give them a, a wide berth because they only stay in one section anyways because this is where the entrance to the stomach is. And so basically, the stomach is a, hall, is a hallway to these guys. It's a tunnel going very steeply down. For the gelatinous cubes, the things that they eat up and secrete just slide along the floor in a big snotty goopy mess and slide down that tunnel. So getting down that tunnel itself was going to be a challenge. So... They, this thing eventually breaks off when it realizes, okay, enough damage has been done to me, I have to leave. Which worked just fine for fighting the gelatinous cube, but it caused them a big problem when they proceeded to try to go down this tunnel. Because what happens when something damages something in your body? The immune system comes rushing to fight whatever infection it is. And as they began to make their way down, they found that this thing would slide down, then kind of landing, then slide down, then landing. And then the landings, a lot of times, it would be pooled. It wasn't completely flat. And on their way down, there were several opportunities where they had to um, fight some immune cells. Uh, thank you, Paul. I'm muted. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate you. Paul always mutes this so he doesn't hear spoilers because Paul doesn't get to listen to this live. He listens to it later. But he always comes by. Likes and shares. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Paul. <laughs> so I wave and such. For those of you maybe listening on iTunes or Spotify, I'm waving at Paul because he can't hear me. I appreciate that. Paul is one of one of the uh, one of the group that has listened to every single episode, and I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, we're there. So they had to fight several immune fights. They're the same type of immune cells they fought before. Uh, again, it was just more of a fight to get through, fight to get through. So by the time they got down to the stomach, uh, they were 50% down on spells and some of their, you know, stuff for the day. They definitely, well, Artemis had used her spells to help heal. Um, Dandy was in a, uh, not a super rough spot, but she'd had to take the most of the healing. And Darsha's arm, they had to get all that goop off his arm as well which he didn't even bother to do till after the fight, so it had eaten quite a bit of his... his he had a bunch of bald spots on his arm where it had eaten away at the hair. Because he's a minotaur. Just pointing that out. But finally, enough, they make it to the stomach. And the stomach chamber itself is the biggest chamber they've seen. It's huge. It's larger than the upper, middle, and lower level put together. It's a massive football stadium-sized kind of space. The bottom is completely filled with stomach acid. Yes, Miss Ashley, you get a silver piece. <laughs> but yes, 
The bottom is filled with stomach acid. There are many tendons and muscles and bones and things that look like ramps and pathways to get around the edge and even crossing over it to certain dry spots. So imagine the stomach's not completely flat. There's like hills coming out of it, but there's stomach acid all over. I'm going to say that this was a moment that my players were very intelligent. They did a very good thing of picking up on a clue. And that is the entire way down to the stomach, they never once, other than that first scouting party, ever got to fight a Kuatoa. There were absolutely none down here. And so they were like, they're like, we want to think about this before we go charging into the stomach. I'm like, okay. They're like, we've had to fight something in every room. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a dungeon. Sure. <laughs> they're like, yes. So we're assuming there's either a dungeon or a puzzle or something down here. Like, fair assumption. You know, even if it was their characters and not them, they're like, okay, listen, we've had to fight something in every room. Let's be prepared when we walk in here. And what they and what they did, they're like, we haven't seen any of those fish dudes. That's what they called them, the fish guys, the fish dudes. Like, we haven't seen any of the fish dudes, yet they've lived here the longest. Why don't they come down here? Because the immune system they fought through wasn't that hard. And even they realized, you know, I pointed out, more of them were coming to normal because of the damage they did to the gelatinous cube. So, like, whatever's down here, either A, it's just not good. Example, a floor completely covered pretty much in stomach acid. What are they going to find down here? Or something worse. So <laughs> they went on in to find out which one was the truth. And it was both. As they're standing at the entrance, they can see there are several other entrances coming in uh, that look the same way and several more that look almost even larger. Um, and as they're staying there, they start to hear a rumbling noise and things start to shake just a little bit. And they're grabbing it. Is it like, is this an earthquake? And Danny's like, no, it's a Flonacia quake. And then the other, everybody just shook their heads. And Danny was very proud of herself for that pun at that time. She goes, no, it's a Flonacia quake. But then out of one of the tunnels comes a huge blast of water. And when the water hits the stomach acid, which is very acidic, but not super, super deep, makes a big hiss and a, and a stinky cloud, which was a, a very stinky cloud. They had to roll for damage. Uh, but they also see that it pulled in a lot of other things. Fish, organisms, you know, like, you know, shark, whatever. I mean, it's pulling, as big as Flanacia in, it could probably pull in a, the average size, small to medium-sized whale through one of these tunnels. Uh, and they pulled it, it pulled, it literally is sucking in everything around them and just dumping it in here. And the stomach acid hits and the water will either dissipate into steam and then Go, you know, the steam gets pulled out of an, some of the tunnels are pulling air, the other ones are dropping water, and as all of these things are hitting the stomach acid, the acid starts to eat them up. Um, so as well as these gelatinous cubes up top, which are dealing with some of the other things, there are fish and things going directly into the stomach, and the stomach is directly digesting them. So they see fish just melting and flopping around, big sea creatures and giant seahorse, whatever the heck it, it pulled in. And the stomach acid down here will eat away just about it, bone and everything. So if, there are probably some non-digested stuff down in the acid, but there's nothing sticking out. You know, It's like dragon skeleton or something silly like that. It's just, you know, very stinky. So they have no idea where the pearl is here. 
And Jarrett can't tell him. This is the first time he's ever been here. He's never been down the ramp before. To where the Kuatoa is is the furthest he's ever been. So being down here, they're like, okay, we have to find this pearl. We know the pearls are like this big because they fit in the chest of holding unless our DM is a jerk and makes this one way big, which I didn't, but I considered it when they said that. <laughs> they said, unless he's a jerk, big jerk. And I was like, ah, ah. Well, now I'm going to consider it, but I didn't. So they had to find it in this massive chamber. And their first thought is it's probably central, right? It's probably pretty central. It's the important thing of this room. It, the center part is probably the hardest part to get to, which, looking at it, was very, very accurate. It was hard to get to the stomach of this chamber. Most of the tendons and ramps and things I talked about that don't have acid or only occasionally have acid splash up on them a little bit when a big gust of water comes down, uh, are around the outer edges. There's really not a lot crossing over the center of the pool. Um, they were smart enough to see, hey, can we sit and count and figure out how often the water comes in? Does it come in in a pattern? And yes, it did. Every 10 minutes, a huge gust of wa water came in from uh, one of the four holes. And the four holes did not have a pattern. That was the odd part. Uh, and mostly because the water is being pulled from a central hole on the top of Flonatia and then funnels down to these and just different flaps will allow the waters in based on whatever. Um, I just, it was a thing that wasn't normal, but it was just about every 10 minutes water would come out of them. So they knew that if they were underneath or trying to get past that big hole that a whale could slide through, they had 10 minutes at most to get past that section before water might come out. A 25% chance a 1d4 chance that something is going to come out of that tunnel. So they had to be very careful with how they plotted their course. And they did not want to split up, obviously. If somebody slips and falls in the acid, it may take everybody else. They did not do their traditional, hey, let's go ahead and wrap rope around us. Instead, they decided to do something they hadn't done the entire time they'd been down here. They decided to get out their flying carpet. And they hadn't done that in a while down here. They, so they decided flying carpet's the way we have to go. This thing's in the middle. And we got to get to the middle. And we don't want to climb around these waters. The middle never really got hit by the water. Like, if we stay close to the top, we can look down and try to find it. Not to worry about getting hit by the water. So they decided that two of them would fly up there in case, you know, something was funky and they had to make evasive maneuvers. And they didn't have anybody fall off. And so Mercy and Dandy went. Artemis is afraid of heights. And she'll get on there if she has to. But if two people are going, she's not going to be one of them. Uh, Darsh is big, harder to hold him. So Mercy was a strong fighter, along with Dandy, who's the scout anyways. So that's usually the pair that are going to go. So they start flying, looking for this pearl. And they don't go straight to the middle. I mean, they're looking around a little bit, just in case it's not that far in, right? Makes sense. But they don't see anything. And as they're getting further into this room... Because remember I said it's kind of stinky and stuff. You could see across the whole room, though. It's not like you couldn't see anything. When they get to the middle, there's nothing there. Not a thing. And they're like, well, crap. Do we go back and tell them? Or do we continue on and see if we can find it and then go back and tell them? Because if we can just grab it ourselves, that could save us a lot of trouble. Yeah, if only... So, they decided to carry on and see if they could find it. And this is one of those good news, bad news situations for my friends. 
The good news is they did find the pearl. The bad news is they found something else as well. So as they're making their way over there, they can see on the far side, now they're getting closer, they can see detail. On this side, the stomach is way more veiny, if you will. Not as many holes on this side. Um, It's very brain-like in texture, if you know what I mean. If you've ever seen a brain, just like the wiggles and the lines and the tubes and all that stuff, it looked like just like lumps of solid cottage cheese, uh, which is what a brain looks like, if you didn't know. Uh, But they see that. And sure enough, something glints from the center of this, a little glint of light off of something reflective. And they're like, aha! Pearl in the wall. And they re-see that they could have got to it going all the way around, Uh, But when they got over here, someone would have to stand on somebody else's shoulders to reach it. Even Darsh would be quite tall enough to pull it. But in their lucky magic carpet, they're able to fly right over to it. And that's what they decide to do. All by themselves. I mentioned that the floor is covered in stomach acid. So clearly there's nothing live here that runs around on the ground. That would not be good. It would hurt its little feeties. But you know what does not have little feeties and flies is something called an Eye of the Deep. I didn't create this one. This is a Dungeons & Dragons monster. An Eye of the Deep is an underwater beholder. um, Known, which is a very intelligent, very powerful, magical creature. That looks like a squishy ball with a big eyeball and a big mouth underneath it. And a bunch of little tentacles off its head with other eye stalks. And these things are all bad. Now, Eye of the Deep's a little different than the traditional one. Where it doesn't have quite as many head tentacles. And the spell selections it have is a little bit different. Um, but the central eye, much like some of the other boulders, have the opportunity to be a spell itself. Uh, and more commonly, it's going to be one of two things. Anti-magic ray which will literally unmagic anything, even your magic items, permanently. Works as a ray of nullification or wand of nullification. Uh, artifacts have a chance to save against it. Um, or worse, disintegrate. Uh, disintegrate will disintegrate you. It turns you to ash and dust. There's no healing from that. There's no coming back. There's no body. You can't be saved from disintegrate. And that right there is probably one of the main reasons people fear beholders. Uh, Because disintegrate is a bad mojo. Uh, The way disintegrate works can differ from creature to creature and whether it's a spell or a creature. Some things it'll disintegrate whatever it hits, but it won't carry on through that. Some will just go a certain distance and everything between that and the end of that ray... Like I say, I can shoot at 40 feet, right? Anything between me and that 40 feet is gone. You hit something, it disintegrates. It's not like the, you have to be all in it. So hits me in the chest with a ray this big around, I disintegrate from this center out kind of thing. Fire and ash. So an eye of the deep has slightly less tentacles, um, but it also has been living here for quite a while, feeding on the different denizens within Flonasia. And of course, as an incredibly intelligent and incredibly magical creature, it would also covet the pearl as a way to increase its spell's capabilities. And so our heroes 
are now in a fight with the Beholder. And they left three of the party back on the other side of this football stadium room. They decide, smartly so, to flee. Um, and they are a running. Well, flying, technically. The eye of the deep is not as fast as them. The carpet's faster. Um, but as they're going out, I'm casting spells at them. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm straight up with you guys. There was a chance I was going to kill somebody here, permanently. Um, I never set out to do that. I've talked about that. But occasionally, the opportunity can happen. I mean, I don't set it that way, but to give these people a challenge from a creature, you know, a creature that is worth their level at this point, something that they won't just march through without any trouble, sometimes those creatures are literally capable of beating them. Uh, so I walked into this with the assumption that I may be really breaking a heart this episode. Uh, when we were playing, not this episode, you and me, maybe. They managed to make it back without getting hit by anything. They land, and they've got no choice. Well, they have a choice. They could just flee and run back up the tunnel and hope they can get away from this thing. I did stress that it was a very slippery and steep tunnel, and they had a heck of a time getting down here. Um, but they need that pearl. If they want that pearl, they're going to have to go through this thing. So they decide to fight it. And immediately they have problems because it's not stupid. Beholders are incredibly intelligent, above normal intelligence. It's not going to fly into weapon range. It's just not going to do that. Darsh has like one, maybe two javelins left, and they're not magical. They're not going to do anything to a beholder. Nobody else uses ranged weapons here. Jarek has only the sword they gave him. Artemis has spells, but there's not much that's going to work down here in a giant creature's stomach. That leaves Dandy with some daggers. She's lost one or two minor daggers by this point. She's only got so many, and if she misses or even hits, they're going to fall in the stomach acid. She's not going to get those back. So they're in a bit of a predicament here. How are they going to fight it? One option would be to try to lead it up the tunnel and not go all the way up. The tunnel was smaller. In there, it wouldn't be able to fly as high. It could very likely be in range of at least Darsh, um, if not some of the others. Um, and that is exactly what I expected them to do. It is not what they chose to do. Mercy and Dandy decided that, well, Darsh, they're, they're, they're going to try to lead it down to where Darsh can get a hit at it, and they get back on the flying carpet. And they try to kite the beholder. Uh, the term kite means like a kite, you pull a string and it falls behind you. In video games and things like this, kite is your, you get the interest of things, so they're chasing you around and you're leading them where you want them to go. Is the boulder damaged by the stomach acid? If it was to touch the stomach acid, yes. But it can fly and the stomach acid is well below them. But yes, potentially the stomach acid could have an effect on them. That's also a good idea that they didn't have. So they decide to get up there and in a Hail Mary attempt, they try to fly in close enough that Mercy can get some hits on it. Which she does. She successfully does a real quick flyby and hits the thing. It was incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky. 
but unfortunately foolish in a way that it made them think, oh good, this works. So they went to do it again. And in this situation, it didn't play nicely. And it moved very quickly. And it grabbed Mercy in its teeth and pulled her off the flying carpet. You gotta imagine this thing is... I'm trying to think of the size of round here. Uh, I I want to say something huge and round like myself. Um, But something quite smaller than that. It's it's got to be at least six feet in diameter. That's, that's from one side to the other. It's a large floating ball. Some are smaller. There's different smaller and larger types of beholders. There's many different types of beholders. This is the underwater one. And it bites her and pulls her off. Uh, and she takes quite a huge chunk of damage. While she gets bit, Mercy lays another big smack and intelligently hits it in the giant eye, which is right above the mouth, right? Like she's being chomped on. So she smacks the middle eye. The middle eye is the most dangerous eye. Um, And they'd been trying to throw what few things they had at it that they didn't care if they lost at the eye. Darsh did throw his two javelins, not to do damage, but to just try to get that eye to stop being open. Uh, And her smacking it real hard with her morning star uh, did get its attention. And it let go of her. Dandy successfully does a flying move maneuver to catch her and then tries to rush back to where the others are. In this situation, the beholder did not allow that to happen. And as they're trying to fly down real quick, It again reaches out with its mouth. How did it see with its eye closed? Because it's got a tentacles covered in eyes on the top of its head. Like Medusa's, but with eyes instead of snakes. And its mouth grabbed onto the flying carpet, and they went flying off of it. Dandy successfully rolled and landed in a way that she didn't take a lot of damage. Mercy fell halfway into the stomach acid. Darsh was running around ready to try to grab and catch either of them, but Mercy did not. And he had to pull her out, and she's in quite a bit of pain. And with all the other damage she had, she passes out. The Beholder grabbed the carpet with its teeth. And when it let go, two pieces of cloth float down into the stomach acid. Bit it clean in half. And they lost their flying carpet. So before they've done any real damage to this creature, other than Mercy's one lucky hit and then one eye hit, Mercy's pretty much out for the count, and they've lost their flying carpet that has been their saving grace for years. And the carpet is gone. They weren't real happy with me, the players, I tell you. They acted foolishly, and... They still got the roll. I rolled. I didn't just say, ooh, I do it. I rolled. I grabbed it. I rolled a, th- I rolled a six-sided dice. One and two, I grabbed Dandy. Three and four, I grabbed Mercy. Five and six, I grabbed the carpet. I rolled a five or a six. I don't remember which one. It was a five or a six. I grabbed the carpet. And then I rolled to see whether or not I was successful. Because if you damage a magic item, there are little bits of uh, magic power that's released. 
it took a little bit of damage from biting that in half. It's still a magic item. You giggled a little bit as DM. I know you did. Inside? Yes. Very much so. For two reasons. One, I never plan on destroying a specific magic item or killing a person. We talk about that. Uh, but I will say that that carpet has been a thorn in my side since I gave it to them. And that many times I've come up with cool things to challenge them and they just flew over it. <laughs> so I wasn't sad to see it gone. But I wasn't purposefully going after it. That was the case. It had been gone a long time ago. Artemis heals Mercy, of course. Takes her a round or two to get back on her feet. The Beholder at this point, without its big central eye, has to get closer to use some of its smaller eyes. Um, and this is when they finally start to go back up the tunnel a little bit. Because that's where Darce grabs Mercy to try to get her out of the way so they could heal her. That left Jarek and Dandy at this point trying to tank this thing while Darsh got her out of the way. Uh, then Jarek and Dandy come back in the tunnel. And this is when they realize the tunnel is what they should be using. And Mercy finally gets healed. She gets up. Darsh at this point now is able to hit the thing as it comes into the tunnel. Uh, Mercy enters back into battle, and she still can't reach it. She's very short. She's like 5'3", five, 5'4", five, comparatively to Darsh, who's, you know, like 12 feet tall. She's very short compared to him, and he's just able to hit it. So Mercy does start doing something. She's done once or twice, but never really done effectively. She starts throwing her morning star at it. She whips it end over end. Sometimes it does damage. Most of the time it misses. But if it misses, it just teleports right back to her hand and she gets to do it again. And this is the first time she ever machine gunned her Morningstar. Throw. Got it back. Throw. Teleport it back. Even if she, whether she hits it or not. Even if it goes in the thing's mouth, she can teleport it back before it can do any damage. That never happened, but hypothetically. Um, so, it put them... Uh, she did get a few hits on that, which, again... They tried to maneuver themselves to get behind it. Dandy was constantly trying to get behind it. But you can't get behind something that has multiple eyeballs that can look in any direction on top of its head. There was not going to be any backstab against a beholder. They had to dig deep in this one. Uh, and they had to start pulling out magic items and things that they were saving for a rainy day, if you will. You know what I mean? Darsh quaffed a potion of strength that gave him more strength, things like that. He had a potion of, I want to say it was giant strength, something like that. Uh, he was already as strong as some giants, but he had, I think he had a uh, storm giant, which I think is the strongest giant, if I remember correctly. Don't hold me to that. But in second edition, I want to say storm giant was the strongest, and they had a potion of that. And he'd been hanging on to that for a long time. He'd been carrying that for a while. Um... Dandy started throwing her good daggers with the understanding that she may lose some of them in this fight. Um, but at this point, they realized they were fighting something much harder than they were used to normally fighting. Um, and they started tossing all sorts of stuff. You'll remember that I said that Artemis collects rings. It became a thing of hers. So she started pulling out rings that she'd been hanging on to that have charges. She had something called the Ring of the Ram. Ring of the Ram, imagine shooting a great big ram head. Kind of like a thing you're going to ram a door open with. I can't think of what that's called, but it's got a giant ram head. It's a huge, blunt thing. And she found a ring that only had like six charges on it forever before this. And she always wanted to hang on to it. And the few times she'd put it on to use it, 
she never got to use it. She put it on, finally be good, and she'd be, I'm going to use it. Everybody would be dead already. So she, she popped off every charge. She used that ring up completely in that fight. Uh, as well as her magic missile wand, uh, Jarek was useless. There was nothing Jarek could do except take Darsh's shield and try to stand in front of Artemis, which is what they told him to do. Block Artemis. Well, she starts whipping out rings. She had a ring of shooting stars that she'd been hanging on to for a while. Again, a bunch of magical rings with only a certain amount of charges that they did not want to lose. Up to this point, they didn't have any choice. So they started whipping out their really good magic stuff. And they used a lot of it up. They had a couple wands of lightning. and They had a wand of lightning, I want to say, that had two charges on it. A couple things like that. Um, a lot of times, like I said, when you find it, you roll to see how many charges it has in Again, if you, it's like this: like you're walking around the store, and some, and you are outside in the park, and you find something, you're probably not going to find it new and in the package, right? You find a pack of cigarettes, you open it up, some of them are missing, probably, right? Like you know, somebody drops their pack of cigarettes, just some of them are gone. It's the same type of situation. If you beat somebody and they have a wand on them, it's assumed they've used that wand at least a little bit. So you see how much ammo is left in the chamber. So. They had to burn through a lot of their magic items in this situation. Um, they almost used one, but they didn't. In fact, in the middle of the battle, they pulled out a magic item to see if they could use it and realized how important it would be to solve another problem later. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but in the moment, they had a good idea that would help them later, and they're like, nope, we're going to save this one. We'll talk about that in a minute. They were successful in beating the Beholder. But there was one other thing that they lost in this battle. Because it did get to use its disintegrate spell one time. And I rolled it. And the person that it rolled for was Jarek. Now, the way this disintegrate works is it hits something and then it disintegrates it and it stops. It's not the one that goes a certain distance. I explained that to them earlier on. Jarek survived. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, he was hiding behind Darsh's shield. Darsh's green dragon scale custom-made shield from the first dragon they fought ever way back when they were looking for the stones in the woods where the centaurs were. Running around with some of Figgy's gully doors. Uh, his shield got disintegrated. That hurt Darsh's heart right there. He cared more about that than the, than the carpet. Everybody else cared more about the carpet. But uh, he lost his shield. But they successfully defeated the Eye of the Deep. And it fell into the stomach acid. Darsh immediately grabs the chest of holding from Artemis, slaps it down, and goes down real quick and comes back out with a bunch of ropes and grappling hooks and throws it out there and basically fishes the thing and using his strength pulls it up out of the acid. Without telling anybody why. He's like, I do this real quick. And I'm like, okay, go ahead. I didn't know. And I'm like, and I'm like okay, you pulled it out. Why? He's like, I have sea mages, and I'm willing to bet pieces of a, of a beholder are stuff that they would kill somebody to get a hold of. And it's true. 
It's very true. Something this powerful, you're not going to find a beholder stock or beholder eyeballs just anywhere. And so, in the middle of this whole thing, while Artemis is healing everybody up, Darsh and Jarek start harvesting this beholder. They take teeth, they take saliva, they've got all these glass tubes and such that Tobias used to carry inside the case that he never took. Because he always like, get me some of my glass tubes! Because he was the one who always harvested. And it got them into that mentality that we can give it to our mages. Mercy has battle mages. They're friends with the, the tower. They show up at the tower and they're like, hey, I've got this bag full of beholder parts. Would you like them? Talk about earning some goodwill from some wizards. You know what I mean? And the wizards help them out a lot. They're all wearing chokers that let them breathe underwater right now because of that. So Darsh is like, this is a good chance to, to earn some brownie points for all of us. And so they harvested. They took like an hour and harvested as much stuff that they could fit. Um, I want to say there was even talk of dumping out the barrel of pickled fish to use the barrel to hold like blood and such. They ended up not doing that because the pickled fish was just too valuable. So they used other things like buckets. They dumped out big, big casks of lamp oil, which is how they light fires and stuff all the time. They emptied that out and uh, filled it up with everything they could. So, you know, because they're going to be in there occasionally. They don't want to smell it. Uh, so they did everything they could. And it was a very smart thing. I... When I put it in there, never even considered harvesting it for parts. But Darsh was like, oh yeah, we're taking this. And they got a, they literally got a fortune in Beholder parts. Now that that fight is over, they still have to go get the pearl. They have to start, they've got no carpet now. Now they got to start following around the rules. So now they're back to having to count the 10 minutes, rush across an area, make dexterity checks on the wet ground underneath those holes while the water's not going out to make sure they don't slip and fall on the stomach acid. So it was a little jungle gym of tests and trips that they had to run across. Uh, which they did with little to no damage. I want to say one or two people slipped and foot went into the acid once or twice. They took a few hit points of damage. Um, luckily, Darsh didn't because he was the only one with magical boots. And Darsh asked a very important question. My boots let me walk on water. In the past, they've let me walk on other fluids. Could I walk on the stomach acid? I thought that was a very good question. I was like, well, let's think of it this way. Number one, you don't know until you try. If you're wrong, the boots are destroyed. But I'll give you a hint, the way that I'm thinking about it. When you walk on water, do your boots get wet? And we talked about that. He's like, yeah, they get wet. I'm like, then if you walk on acid, your boots are going to get acid on them. You may not sink, but your boots are going to get acid on them. He's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to walk on that. He's like, if I fall in, I'm going to try to land on it to save myself so I don't die. I'd rather lose the boots than die, but I'm going to not to try to walk on acid. And I thought that was a good idea. They make it over. And this pearl, again, they have to lift somebody up. Uh, they have to wedge it out a little bit because it's slimy. Not really acidic. It doesn't burn them, but it's slimy with goop. And so they have to clean it off to pearl the, uh, pull that out, which they are able to do. And then, about that time, I have it written right here. Uh, this little section I called Wakey Wakey. Once the final pearl is removed... This upsets Flonatia and begins 
to partially waken. Will it fully waken up or not? I was rolling every round to see if it would. But this causes the beast to shudder. And the shudder is way more of an earthquake than they've had to deal with. And it was the one time they almost all fell into the stomach acid. And the thing, even after the shudder stops, the ground is not completely still. And so they have to get the heck out of here. So they have to start making their way back. The water, the whole thing they just went through a second time. Which they do successfully. They actually got back easier than they got there. Um, but they got back there pretty quickly. Um, and as they're starting to make their way up this steep tunnel, they realize that there's more fluid flowing down than was before. You know what I mean? So, you know, goops and liquid with slime was just dripping down there. It wasn't like it was a water slide. They were walking down a thing that was more covered in a thin layer of slime. Now it's getting more like a water slide. There's actual water flying down here instead of just the stomach goop from the gelatinous cubes. So they have a harder time getting up there, but they successfully make it, uh, only to find that the lower chamber is starting to fill with water. And the Kuatoa are freaking out. I understand these things can breathe underwater, but even if you breathe underwater, your house starts to sink, you're going to have problems with that. you gotta, you got to be concerned. Because this, and the gelatinous cubes, of course, are getting wet, and they're being washed around, uh, because Flanacea's internals work a little bit different when it's awake. Um, it's actually inhaling a large amount of water, which is starting to fill up the central chamber, which is the large middle and bottom chamber that all these races kind of fight over. So it's a little bit of anarchy, and everyone's trying to run around. A lot of people's defenses have fallen, so now the walls that they were fighting the immune system, the immune system is still fighting them. They're, you know, everybody's fighting for their lives at this point. And so our heroes basically just had to run through it all. And they got into several combats. They had to get a fight with a Kuatoa here, a Naga there, you know, uh, immune system here. You know, I, I, each round I would roll to see what would happen. Did they get caught? Then I would roll to see what caught them in the area they were in as they got higher and then the Kuatoa dropped off and then the Naga popped in. So uh, what you would consider uh, random encounter rolls were kind of on high speed at that moment. Uh, but they, they fought their way through, by this point, relatively weak. Artemis was almost completely out of spells. But they managed to fight their way back up to where Jarek's people are, who are also freaking out because their section's starting to fill with water as well. And now they're in a pickle. How are they going to get all of these people out of here and to the surface? And even worse, now they're in a hurry because everything's filling with water. It was at this moment that they pulled out that magic item they decided to save. They had This is a magic item that only had a certain amount of charms. And they'd used it a few times to pretty good effect, even though I've never really brought it up. Never anything super story important. But they had something called a Horn of Blasting. Horn of Blasting is literally that. It's a long horn. And when you blow on it, it expels such a shockwave push that it causes cave, mountains to crumble. Not the whole mountain, but you know what I mean? Caves could crumble. Buildings could trash. It's like your own personal, you're shooting on a huge blast of earthquake. And so they decided to gamble on their 
amazing plan of getting underwater with everybody in the chest of holding, including Darsh, Artemis, and Mercy. And Dandy getting out there and blowing the horn and using it as a way to propel themselves to the surface much, much faster. They didn't know if this would work, but they did know that the few times that they'd used it in the past, uh, if it had been someone like Artemis or Dandy, they were thrown backwards. If it was Darsh, he had to struggle to stand up because it had such force just even holding it. They're like, it blows us backwards normally. And we could breathe underwater, so we just keep blowing on it if we need to because they didn't know how fast it was going to send them up. And I was like, oh, okay. They also didn't want to use the Horn of Blasting, so the last thing you want to use is use that on Flonatia. Remember, they've been very careful not to damage Flonatia. That's something they've not been trying to do, other than immune system stuff, but there's no choice there. Uh, they didn't want to hurt Flonatia. Flonatia's just a giant sea creature. There's no reason to do that. You could probably make a whole lot of flay of fishes out of it, though. So many flay of fishes. Uh, does Darsha's boots work underwater for propulsion? Uh, yes and no. If he wanted to run across the water, the, the floor of the ocean, yes. But it's each footstep has to step on something solid. So, like, he's lucky because he has his boots of water walking. That's what normally lets him do it on the surface. But he's in the water. The boots of water walking don't work submerged. So, unless he's, his feet are on the ground, the propel, it wouldn't propel him anywhere. So, it wouldn't send him up. And he only gets to shoot ahead, I think it's 20 feet. And they're way deeper than that. Like, it only goes about 20 feet. Um, so, while not a bad idea, unfortunately, it would not have the distance or propulsion. And you can only use it, like, once an hour or once every six hours or something. I don't remember the specifics. I created it. It's in one of my binders. But I don't remember. It's, I know you can't use it all the time. So, they go ahead and they... They all climb. They all get to where Jarek can lead them to an exit. Like Jarek knows, hey, I know where there's a thing that leads out of here. We've tried to swim out before <laughs> to see if there's any way we could see the surface. Because first, of course, they didn't know how deep they were, so they had to try those things. Um, you know, at one point they got a giant oyster shell and used it like a bubble of water to go out a little bit further to see. You know, things like that to test their waters, if you will. Um, so they knew they were too deep, but they know how to get out. They find they know where the exits are. So they, they lead them to there, and they get there, because, again, there's one or two small immune system fights on the way. Nothing huge. But when they finally get to that, everybody climbs in, and it's up to Dandy. Because they know that if Dandy opens the chest underwater, number one, it's got to be on something solid. So she can't stop halfway up. And if they open underwater, it's going to fill with water. Not air. They don't have enough chokers for everybody. So there's a lot of gamble on this horn of blasting. But the Horn of Blasting has quite the propulsion unit to it. Uh, and I was surprised they didn't use that in other fights previously for that exact thing. So I, when they said they are going to do that, I'm like, oh, I've thought of that before, but you've never used it. So Danny gets out there, points it down, and of course it's a huge noise. Um, which all the ground, because she, she's, she's pointing it at the ground, she's like near the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it's at the bottom of the ground just crater, kind of like when Superman jumps kind of thing. And she's like... And she, the propulsion is so first that she she knocks a tooth out. That was one of the things we said happened to Dandy. She lost a side tooth because it hit her in the mouth so hard. 
because the propulsion. Then she's holding on to it like a rocket or like a, a witch on a super propelled broom. She's hanging on to this thing, shooting to the surface. And uh, even though she has free action, I, I, you know, I, 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 at this point, I'm, I'm being fun with them, right? I'm being silly. So I'm like, her face is doing the wobbly cheek thing, like you see in the air when you got the, except there's water and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then I'm like, we flash forward to everybody sitting on the boat. You're like, hey, when do you think Darsh and them will be back? And all of a sudden, Dandy comes flying out of the water. And uh, she doesn't go but six or eight feet in the sky. And then it's one of those things where it stops, kind of like the Wiley Coyote, and, like, and falls back in the water again. Um, they see it. She's not that far from them. I mean, they were staying in the same spot. She's off in the distance. But they uh, immediately let out a boat a rowboat, you know, one of their side boats. It's not going to pull the whole ship over there. And they send it out, and several, Rokar and a couple others rock out there, and pull Dandy out. Um, I said that when Dandy first came to the surface, she was almost unconscious from it. Uh, and when she did regain consciousness, she realized that she had a fish in her mouth, and she had to spit that out. She's like... <laughs> but they pull her up onto the boat, uh, and they have to rush. He's like, you have to hurry. They're in the chest. Cause they all know there's a chest of holding. His crew knows about that. Like, what's chest of holding? We got to get over there and get them air. Because even then, with the propulsion, it was it was still took a while to get up there. And so they rush back to the boat, and Dandy opens it up, and it's in time where nobody nobody died, if you will. But boy, they were having rough moments. So they have successfully made it to the surface uh, with three pearls of Flonasia. And 20-plus more people than they started with. And some kids. Unexpected. So now, time is of the essence. They have to get back to the sea turtle. They have what he wants. And they head that direction. And, sure enough, they make it. When they're arriving in the turtle's waters, they don't have to go far into it. And the turtle surfaces. Like, he knows when they're in their, his waters. They can, he knew well before they got there. So he floats up to the top. And he's like, did you bring what I asked? And they're like, yes. We got all three pearls. And he's genuinely surprised. He goes, I'll be honest. I didn't think you'd succeed. Uh, I am pleasantly surprised. But I do keep my word. So I will let you borrow the trident. And you will give me the three pearls... And three of the crew of your ship of my choice. And those three will stay with me. Um, you know, un until you bring my trident back. I will give you 90 days. Because I know you have to travel a good distance. I know you've got a ways to go. I'll give you 90 days. But be warned. You're not back in my waters by the 91st day. These three people I choose life will be forfeit. And I'm going to come and get my trident. And I've made arrangements to make sure it doesn't work on me. And they're like, okay. We're not happy about this. Which three of the crew do you want? And Darsh had been dreading this moment. Because he didn't know who he was going to take. And he chose... Nathalian... Rokar... And Garrig. Now Garrig is his cleric friend that went with them to the Battle of Serenity. On the big war stuff. Nathalian is the elven prince who also went, and Rokar is his cousin. Darsh is definitely not happy to lose any of these people, especially with the battle and such coming up. Those are you know important people, but he doesn't really have any choice. 
The three of them agree, of course. And he says that before they even get there. Hey, guys, when we get there, he's going to ask for three of you. If you're not okay with that, tell me now. I'll put you in a rowboat. We'll come back and get you later. And hope that doesn't cause problems. I'll take that gamble. But everybody's like, no, we'll do that. And these are three of his good friends and a cousin. So, you know, they'll do that. So, he does give them the trident. Gives them a little bit of an idea of how it works. And, as a bonus, gives them directions directly to where the were sharks are. He's like, trust me, I want you to succeed. I want you to bring my stuff back. And I'd love to see your, your Ocladon out of my waters. So, yeah. I'm, I'll show you exactly where they are and gives them a distance and here's where you go in your water charts and so on and so forth. The three people climb up on the back of his shell. Uh, he tells Darsh that there's a there are several small islands within his waters where he'll put them where they'll have no problem finding food and water and they take a bunch of supplies with them anyways but he's like, yeah, there's a place where they'll be just fine but they won't be going anywhere. Uh, and they better not try. You know, friendly threat there. So they leave, and our heroes begin to rush towards where the were-sharks are. So this next section is where I told you I planned something out, and it didn't go the way I planned. They've been traveling for a couple of weeks. Remember, it took a long ways to get over here, right? Long days to get over to all this. But now they're, you know, they were going around and around and around and around. Now they just get you a straight beeline home. So it's going to take less time to get home than it took to get here. But it's still an issue. And they are hurrying. After several weeks of travel, early one morning as they're traveling along, they are forced to slow and stop the ship because they're about to have an incident. Before them in the water is a can only be described as small army of sea elves. And it looks like they were waiting for them. Turns out some information got to them of approximately Darsh's location where he may be going. Not sure where that information came from. Like, you know, a one-eyed shark or anything like that. Um, but the elves were aware and were watching. I planned a pretty big fight for this area. Gipper was going to get hurt. Princess taken. Many casualties. Not death, but some dead. But, you know, Jarek and crew are helping out as much as they can. Half of them are you know, trained. But that's not what happened. Before the elves could attack, Darsh jumped off the ship. Jumped right off the ship. Landing on his feet, because he has boots of water walking, and begins walking straight out to them. Sea elves aren't idiots, but they're going to be surprised by a minotaur walking on water right in front of his ship. And Darsh opened up a dialogue. Because leading this group was the king himself. I expected it to be a big battle, but instead, Darsh decided to talk it out. I was very proud of him. Uh, it was very, very different than what, how I expected this to go down. Uh, but he literally took the initiative and decided he was going to go a different direction. Um, and I think it ended up turning out better in the long run. Darsh arrives, walks out, and of course the king is like, we know you have my daughter. And the gnome. Darsh is like, that's correct, we do. The king's like, you will hand them over now or I'll kill you all and take them. 
Because, you know, they could literally sink the ship and she'd be fine. Everybody else would die. Because they don't know about the chokers. Darcy's like, in a minute. The Emperor's like, no, in a minute. Right now. I'm Give me back my... You know, he's being very... You know, I don't like being told to wait a minute. Darcy's like, we have with us a magical artifact of extreme power. Powerful enough to potentially... She can't make guarantees. Potentially defeat Euroclodon, the sea creature that the were-sharks are using against you, and defeat them as well. And a conversation goes on. He's like, he's like, we only want to help. Of course, you want to take your daughter? She wants to go with you? That's fine. She doesn't want to go with you? We're going to have to fight. And from the ship, you know, he's like, he's like, Darcy's like, I'll give her a choice. The king's not happy about that. But, you know, they've been playing off this whole kidnap thing for a while, so the king's like, of course she'll want to come home. She comes to the edge of the ship, she talks down to her father, and she just jumps straight into the water and swims over. With uh, Gipper not real happy about that. She says, yes, I'll go home with you, father. I apologize for this and that. Gipper was only afraid for my life and trying to help me. And so was Darsh and his friends. Please don't hurt them. They're just trying to do what they could to help. King's like, I understand that. And you know I love you. But we, as leaders, have roles to play as well, and I have to put the lives of tens of thousands ahead of, head of ourselves. He goes, trust me, if I could take your place, I'd do it. And he's like, Fohammer, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate that you want to help, but I can't gamble my kingdom, the lives of all these people, on your potentially might work. Darsh says, how long do you have to turn her over? The king says, I have, I have 15 more days. I have 15 days to turn her over. Darsh turns around and yells out of the ship, Gasket! Gasket, yes, sir. How long is it going to take us to get there? Gasket is his navigator. It was uh, 12 days. Darsh turns around and looks at him. He goes, you've got 15. We need 12 to get there. And the king kind of looks at him for a minute. And he's like, he looks at his daughter and he goes, I love my daughter more than anything. And if these are to be our last days together, I want to spend every minute that I have. You've got 15 days. Darsh smiles and goes, I'll take him. And just turns around and using his boots of charging, shoots back to the ship. Which, for the record, he had to roll. That would have been way less epic if he'd have tripped and fallen face first into the water. There would have been some laughter from the elves. But he charged forward and made it, and jumps up and pulls himself, and climbs back onto the ship, and calls Dorham over because they couldn't all hear exactly what he was saying. He had to yell the gasket to get that information. And he walks up and he goes, he goes, he goes. He said twelve days. Gasket goes, yeah, that's how long it's taken to get there. And he turns to Dorham. He goes, do you think you can make it faster? And Dorm gets a big smile. He goes, oh, hell yeah. And he starts calling over the crew. And the crew comes up and he's like, hey, our friends, she, she's 15 days. She's going to be handed over to some lecherous, man-eating were-sharks. And then the sharks still have this giant creature that may one day turn them on your friends and your family and the whole of our islands. She's got 15 days. We've got 12 to get there. I think we can get there faster than that. And the crew's like, you're damn right. You know, all the heroic type stuff you could, you'd expect. And they're all standing there cheering, and then Darsh looks at Dorm. Dorm looks at them and goes, 
then get the ship moving. And they're like, oh, they all start charging around and starts yelling out stuff. And sure enough, they, they get the chimera going and they push it to its, to its limits. Um, and I warned them ahead of time that every day they push it to its extreme limits, there is a cumulative 5% chance that the ship will sustain some type of damage. So the first day, it's fine. But the second day, there's a 5%. third day, there's a 10%, then a 15%, then a 20%. The harder you push it, the more you are causing problems. Ships aren't meant to go that fast that long. But they decide to ride it out. Um, when they hit the I was seventh or eighth day, they hit some damage. Um, we rolled. I had a chart out of what part of the ship could be potential issues. Some were easy to fix, some were not. It took a couple of hours, but they got it up and running again. Um, so they managed to only put them back a few hours, but they were pushing it through. So they were busting hump to get to the where sharks waters because now they know pretty much where they are. Again, I want to point out that I was very proud of Darsh for talking that out. And I, my notes here say DM note, because that's where I stopped writing at the time. It goes, the above did not happen. Darsh negotiated with the king, has 15, or has 15 days to defeat the sharks, or the princess will be sacrificed. The princess left with the elves. Those are my, I, sometimes I have to note to myself, like, hey, that stuff did not happen. It's fun when that happens. I love it when they make things go a different way, and it improves the story. It, it, it gives me the opportunity to make it even better. So they book it for 10 days and manage to cut two days off by getting there. They go as far as they feel is safe. They can't go right into where the sharks are, of course. The sharks could see them. I have to assume that the sharks aren't complete idiots. They sent out spies. There has to be you know, some type of lookout. They have to approach this in the water. Although the sharks still don't technically know about the chokers that they're wearing, let them breathe underwater. Dandy held on for a real long time. He couldn't understand why, but he didn't know that's why. So they travel as far as they can, and they decide at this point, once they make it to the water, to the area that they believe they're close, they're going to have to go on foot. Because the sharks will not expect that, right? They're going to come across this ocean's floor. Not going to expect that from anybody. They're probably going to be watching for sea elves, right? Sea elves may still be swimming down, so there'll still be some type of patrol. But they definitely won't be expecting land livers, land lubbers, whatever you want to call them, uh, air breathers, <laughs> to come from the bottom. So they jump on down. Now this time, it's our four heroes, and they take both of the sea mages. They take uh, Nona, and they take uh, the other guy. Morik! God, Morik! I'm dying over here. Morik and Nona are going... Ma ah, Magnus. Magnus is the head of Mercy's battle mages. <clears throat> I keep thinking it's Magnus as well, and, that, and I know it's not, and that's why I keep stopping myself. <clears throat> but Morik is also an M.A. word, so it's Morik. So, <laughs> so Morik and Nona go down with them. They've got some spells, but they don't know what they're going to find down here. Uh, they have all their best gear that they have left ready to go. Their weapons and so on and so forth. <laughs> the M names. <laughs> Michael, Mercy, there's so many. Um, man in the hat. <laughs> M word. So, they make it down. So as they're traveling through the waters, um, there are several things that they notice. 
very, very quickly, they get to a point where as they're traveling, they travel for like 30 minutes to an hour, they get to a point where they stop seeing fish. They see much, much less marine life, especially anything of size. There'll be little fish, but nothing of, you know, good-sized fish. Sometimes they're walking along and six and eight feet long fish just swim on by at the bottom of the ocean. You know, not necessarily meat eaters, they're just big old honking ship fish that swim by. They're not seeing anything big in this area. <clears throat> what kind of makes them believe that they're getting into the right area, where the sharks are. Because anything big would get eaten. And unlike real sharks, it's not normal for a bunch of sharks to just sit there in the same area for several years and never move, right? Sharks, like any other sea creature, are going to travel around. They may have different areas. They go to different times of the year. These guys have picked a place and stay there. As they're swimming around, they are also having to watch for sharks. Because sharks could be were sharks, or they could just be regular sharks that are controlled by were sharks, because they can do that. I talked about that earlier. So they have to be careful. Hey, is this going to be more sharkies? Or were sharkies? So they have to be careful. So they're legitimately sneaking across. The ground here is relatively rocky and porous, so they're climbing around stuff, hiding when they can. It's not just flat sand, of course, because that would be boring. Um... After they get to that area where they stop seeing big fish, within the next hour, they start, again, verifying why. They start coming across bones and mostly eaten of many large things. Whales, uh, things of that nature. Uh, let's see, what one second. Whales, skeletons of large things is what I have written here. Whales, etc. So, things of that nature. So, they know they're in the right area. Uh, so, now they're having to be extra careful. And they're trying to sneak away from the bodies. In case they come back looking for more meat, right? Because some of the bodies are mostly eaten, but not completely. Uh, some of them look like they've been there for a while, too. Um, they do eventually come across a situation where they come across a couple of great white sharks. The great white sharks turn out to be regular sharks, and they do attack them. Uh, so there is one combat with a couple of sharks. Uh, but that wasn't too bad. Uh, that went through pretty quickly. I don't think there was much damage. I don't have anything important damage uh, had happened here. But they managed to get through by taking out a couple of sharks. Eventually, after traveling another hour or two, because they've been traveling like five or six hours at this point, finally at this point, uh, they make it to the broken city. And the were sharks have taken up residence in an underwater city that looks like it's abandoned. It looks ancient. Very, very old. Um... But it's mostly crumbled at this point. Uh, and it has a very Roman look to it. Columns and things of that nature. Like you'd expect to find in Rome. That type of uh, architecture. Uh, but very quickly they notice that the doorways to what few buildings uh, are still partially standing um, are very large. Like Darsh could walk through those and he'd have to hop up to try to touch the top of the doorway. So the doors are extraordinarily large. So they make it here, but again, it's completely in ruins. Um, now, the whole time that they're there, two things. They realize the sharks did not build this. It's way older than that. Uh, but they do uh, not have any opportunity to figure out what actually lived there. Because there's nothing there but the sharks. Whatever was there originally is not there. 
and they don't find anything like statues or stuff that wasn't defaced or just crumbled over time. They don't find anything to really lead them to believe or, or figure out what was there originally, but it doesn't look like anything had lived here for many, 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 many years before the sharks found it and decided to make it their place. I know what made it, but they don't. As they get into the city, definitely the amount of sharks swimming around increases. So they're very carefully at this point having to sneak up and around behind buildings and rubble um, and sneak inside of what's left of some buildings to hide from sharks. Because the big problem is they don't know which sharks are regular sharks. Just from seeing them, they don't know. Um, so that's, that's a bit of an issue. Um, they do occasionally find uh, you know, some symbols or what would be hieroglyphics or writing of a, of a nature that none of them understand, with one exception, and that is the symbol for the sea god, who you'll remember, not the nicest god. So whatever was here at least honored or worshipped the sea god. Uh, so I said, a lot of real sharks swimming around here, and they don't know exactly what they're looking for, um, but they figure that the more sharks they come across, the closer they're going to get. Hello, Jing Jordan. What's up? I am live, yes. Uh, streaming Merge Worlds D&D today. Um, so, uh, they are going through the city trying to avoid sharks while at the same time trying to figure out where the sharks are if they're getting closer or not. So, there was a lot of rolling and being sneaky. There's no dropping the chest of holding here again. They're underwater. So, they have to be careful to make their way around. And eventually, as they're traveling, they notice that many of the city's streets, uh, it you know, just from what they've, they've found, it's very much like a wagon wheel. The roads being the spikes that go to the outer ranks. They saw the round edge and the round road that kind of goes around. And what they look at me, it leaves like all the roads are leading to the middle. Um, and so like, okay, so whatever this city originally was designed for, the most important thing's probably in the middle. And the sharks seem to be increasing the deeper we get into the city. So let's head towards the middle. Once they did that and stopped trying to have to track by sharks, it made it easier to travel in as much that they didn't have to keep poking their head out looking for sharks other than to try to avoid them. So they were making their way across the water floor. They did uh, sneak through a building that legitimately had two sharks in it. And they end up fighting two more sharks. The sharks were never alone. They're always in pairs. Um, so they beat them relatively easy. I want to say Darsh rolled a 20 on his second turn and like sliced one clean in half. Like, because again, Darsh is big, right? And these weren't great white sharks. I think when I have they're tiger sharks. So they're still big sharks. The sharks come in, and Darsh's like, whoa, and lops the head off of a shark. The other shark's like, well, maybe I don't want to be here for this. But then it's too late. Mercy squishes it. <laughs> but there's some combat. Sure enough, when they get to the center of the city, the sharks actually start to thin out a little bit. But the building in the center is clearly the one that's in the best shape. Still has holes in it and such, and moss and algae and probably coral and stuff all over it. But it's a large building, and all of them taking a look at it can easily say, that is a temple. Temples around the world. You kind of have an idea of what a temple is when you see one. That is a temple. And again, above the big door in the front, between the columns, is the symbol of the sea god, or the top half of it. The bottom half seems to have fallen off, and there's chunks of rubble on the ground beneath it. So... They're like, well, that's where we got to go. So they tr try to make their way in here. Now they have to cross a courtyard to get to it, an open space. The first one they've come across. Um, so 
they have some roles, and they successfully made it. They made it across. There's a couple close calls. They had to time it between sharks because the sharks are kind of all just swimming around in different directions, but all around the city. Um, like a very slow cyclone, I guess. Maybe tornado. Um, they make it to the entrance, and they're now they're sneaking in. Um, immediately inside the main chamber, uh, they can see that the place is just trashed. And I don't mean trashed as in over time it broke apart. That all too. But there's literally just trash. Bones, refuse, things from that situation. Uh, there's just stuff that's all in there that the place is just a dump. Um, many bones of which our heroes do not try to look through and verify what they are because uh, they've not seen any female sea elves and they get a bunch of them given here for the last few years. Uh, as they're approaching through this like an antechamber, they get to the entrance to what would be the main chamber. Um, and here they hear noise. Conversation. They don't hear a lot of talking underwater. Um, but they start peering through the doors and sure enough they see eight humanoids. They're just sitting in the water chatting with each other. There's no fire obviously or anything like that. But they're kind of sitting around eating, gnawing on big hunks of meat. And their talking is guttural. So it's not English. It's you know something that they all understand though. They can look around. They also see that there's a there's a giant statue that's tum- been tumbled or fell over. Whether naturally, it's hard to tell. But it's obviously a uh, statue of the sea god. What parts still remain. And they can see that on the other end of this chamber, there is a door. Uh, a relatively big door that looks like it had b- uh, big doors on the doorway. And one of them is kind of half hanging. The other one's laying on the ground in front of it. So, they had to decide what they wanted to do. Do we try to sneak around these things? Or do we take on eight were-sharks? They decided to fight the were-sharks. They're like, we have snuck around everywhere in this adventure. We came to fight were-sharks and to eliminate them as a threat. We're going to completely eliminate them as a threat. And so, they decide to go on in. Now, they start with Darsh doing his charge boots. Uh, this is a, a little more dangerous for Darsh because there's a lot of rubble. So he has to make a couple checks to see if he can make it through there without tripping because there's an increased chance of falling, if you remember. But he is running across the ground, so that will work. Uh, and he successfully makes it. So as the first round of battle begins, Darsh the Minotaur comes running down the alleyway in this temple at... Eight sharks, guys, or eight dudes, who are just sitting there not expecting a minotaur to come charging in. On either side of Darsh are several different things. Daggers being thrown through the water, which lose a little bit of their damage when they're thrown underwater. Uh, and several magic missiles from Artemis's wand. So, by the time Darsh gets there, a couple daggers are stabbing as well, as well as these magic missiles are hitting. And Darsh is just in combat. And for the very first time ever in all of the times these guys have fought, in all of the times Darsh has used his charging boots to race in and fight something, Mercy climbed on his back. 
Never crossed their mind before, but like a backpack. She hops up and grabs on, and she weighs nothing to Darsh. And Darsh goes charging on in, and as soon as he gets there and he's swinging, Mercy is right next to him, hopping off with her morning star. And Mercy the backpack successfully charges into battle with Darsh. Um, at one point, she was going to try to jump off his back and, and jump, but I was like, that's a little silly. You're not going to have that much momentum. But, but she just jumped off, and immediately, Darsh and Mercy, who are no slouches at combat, are standing smack in the middle of these were sharks. And in the first round, they said they wanted to concentrate on one or two. And they managed to kill one before the other ones even realize they're in combat. They both had to do it, but they basically blow a shark up. Um, and boom, it's gone. I say shark, but it's a were shark. It's a human. There's no regular sharks in here at this point. Taken by surprise, combat begins. Uh, several of the were sharks pull out large blades themselves, usually very jagged swords or long daggers. Um, two of them will turn into uh, sharks immediately. Dandy also comes rushing in at this point, and the two smages, who now are going to start whipping out some of their spells, um, using things like magic missiles, things that they can use that they won't, that won't get slowed down underwater, and will also guarantee hit. So I start popping off those spells, and very very quickly these were sharks start to drop. These are clearly not the boss were-shark. They knew that they weren't going to find the boss were-shark in the first room. So, they're no slouches. They get some good hits in. Darsh gets a really mean cut on his side with one of those jagged things and uh, has to worry about infection. In fact, when this stuff comes to an end, uh, even though Artemis heals it pretty quickly, it festers. Uh, it actually got infected and she had to do a whole second stronger healing spell. Um, and he had a bit of a negative for the rest of this combat. Because she did, couldn't put she didn't put a full heal on there because she was saving her full heals. She wanted to bust out her big heals in the first battle in case they take more damage, but it did give them a little bit of a negative. Uh, but they they burst through these. Now they do it in such a way that they're not being subtle. There's no quiet to this, so they're aware that it's possible other things are going to know they're here. Uh, but they're tired of skulking and they're here for the chiming. Now. One thing I didn't mention, but it's important to remember, Darsh has a little arrow quiver on his back, right? And in that quiver, it's a quiver of holding. He keeps his javelins, which he's restocked from his ship. Once he got on the Chimera, there's always lots of javelins there. But also in there is the trident. So it's, it's this, the trident's way longer, but it's in there holding, and it never falls out. So the trident end is sticking out on his shoulder as well. He does have that with him, because they're not sure exactly how or when they're going to need it. But they did bring it with them, obviously. They wanted too much of a fight to get the dang thing. So this battle goes through, they take a few hits, but very quickly take them out. The sharks transform, in, or two of them turn into sharks, uh, honestly, I think, planning that it would do more damage, and were incorrect. Uh, the sharks, in shark form, um, don't do as much damage. If they can bite you, they do, but it's they have to bite you. It's harder for them to, to grab onto people. So uh, those two went down really, really quick. Mostly from the mages concentrating on them. But they... Uh... No, the trident is an artifact. So it's it's a... That's why the turtle wants it back. Because he, he'd mentioned that there's a concern that it could even be used on him. 
he said he's also found a way to defend himself against it. But no, it's a very powerful artifact, but it does not have one use. Um, like, they can't just pew, pew, pew everyone with it. That's correct. So, the thing about the trident, and I didn't cover this. I'm glad you brought that up, because this is probably a bit of a, a slight on my part. I said that he told them how to use it. I didn't really explain that to you. It doesn't do any damage at all. It's actually designed to control sea creatures. And very quickly, they could be like, if there's 100 fish around, 100 fish, go attack that. They could do that uh, very easily. There's a chance they might even be able to control some of the sharks the artifact, if the artifact is stronger than the where sharks control, which they don't know unless they try. The problem is, is that when you're using the trident, you're not doing any damage with it. And you can't do anything else. You have to focus your attention. And the stronger you are, the stronger power it's going to have. So in combat, it's not going to work on a were shark. They knew that early. He, the, the turtle told them that. It's not meant to kill your Oclodon. It's not even meant to control them. What they were told is, if they can find a way to free your Oclodon, he's going to be pissed. And he may take it out on the elves. That's what the, that's what the Oracle told him. Told them. They said, but the, this girl might be what they could use to keep him from doing that. And so that's the whole point, to see if they're strong enough to control your Oclodon after they break the were-sharks control so it doesn't attack the elves. That's the whole reason they want it. So thank you for bringing that up. I should have ex I meant to explain it back when I said they get told how, but then I went on with the story and forgot. So thank you. I appreciate that. These eight go down pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, I want to say it was only like six rounds. Like They really just beat the hell out of those sharks. Um, and then they're like, okay, we need to hurry. Because now we've made noise, sharks may, regular sharks may be coming. Let's get down that door in the back. It's already half blocked. Darsh is strong enough. The goal is, hey, maybe we can take that other door and wedge it so that people can't follow us. Because sharks are a little bit strong, but they're not Darsh strong. These are still men who turn into sharks. So when they're shark, they're strong as a shark. When they're a dude, they're strong as a dude. They may be a little bit bonus, like other were creatures have a little bit of perk, probably a little bit stronger than the average Joe, but they're not Darsh strong. So sure enough, they get in there, Darsh grabs that door, he just crams it into some coral and wedges it in there, where even he's going to have a bit of a time getting out of there. So nothing's coming back out of that hole as far as Darsh is concerned. <laughs> we'll see. They make their way down, and very quickly Artemis is like, okay, we're going to Crips. This is where Crips would be. We are going underneath of the temple. This is where the holy or the royal would be buried in most societies. And when they get down there, sure enough, that's the case. They go down into a round chamber. It's a round chamber. Okay? Um, and there is one doorway across from them. And on the left and right side, there are a couple smaller doorways that they can see lead to little cul-de-sacs where there's more crypts type thing. The crypt area seems to be completely defaced at this point. Most of them are open. If there was anything valuable in the, they were taken. Uh, looking in the coffins, there's nothing in there. They've been underwater so long, whatever's in there is dissolved. There's not even bones in there. But anything of metal or jewelry might have been in there. It's been taken already. So they've already been grave robbed. And from the looks of it, a while ago. may not have been the sharks. So, they're toughing through that. 
as they're going through this room and they're like, okay, well, we've got to go down that other door. They proceed to do that. When suddenly, about that time, they get attacked. The noise above was enough to alert those below. And they know that the were shark's main were shark's name is Duron. That's the one that they're looking to fight. Uh, that's the big guy. Uh, but he has some mini-bosses as well, if you want to look at it that way, that they have to get through. Personal guards or right-hand men, if you will. And I say men because it's all dudes down here. All the were-sharks are dudes because dudes are evil. That's just how it works. So the first one that comes out of... Well, it comes out, it's not one in each of these round rooms. One of them comes out of one of the round rooms while they're looking around to see, you know, is the shark in here? And a huge brute of a man comes in huge and he has with him two other sharks these are regular sharks but one is a great white and one is a tiger shark and these two sharks are swimming with him and he comes out of one of those round side chambers this dude's not wearing any type of shirt or cape or anything like that his pants appear to be made out of some type of scale probably shark scale or some other fish scale something tough um, and he's got and none of them have shoes on um where sharks very often have webbed fingers and toes, even when they're in human form. It's one of the side effects of, of where sharks. So um, even with that, he can still swim pretty quickly, and he swims faster than a regular dude when swimming. They've got a, that's, that's one of the perks of, of the the where sharks. So this huge brute of a dude comes in and immediately attacks, and they start fighting him because it's such close quarters. The mages they don't have much that they can do. And they've already been warned, don't blow all your magic missiles, because I don't know what you can do down here. Because, you know, a fireball's not going to work that well underwater, and even if it does, we're all in close quarters, we're going to take it too. Half of their spells aren't going to be that useful. So keep the ones you know will work for when we have to have them. So, you know, even they have quarters, they have stabs or daggers. I think they both use daggers in this one. Both of them, they don't, neither of them are staff users. So they have daggers if somebody happens to get close. Um, but they end up fighting against this guy. This guy's big, and uh, he comes out, and him and Darsh really got, start to go at it. Uh, and Mercy and Dandy, along with what little the mages can do, um, are basically taking care of the sharks. Um, the, these sharks are definitely under his control, and they appear to be a bit more strategic in how they attack. Like, you know, he's just because of his control. Um, so they're actually working together. Not like, you know, they have a plan, but they are working together, flanking, things of that nature. Uh, so Mercy and friends are taking care of that. Darsh is taking on this guy, whose name is Gorn. They, you, they never found that out, but his name is Gorn. You get to know that. They never did. His name is Gorn. Uh, and dude's strong, surprisingly so much that Darsh uh, is in competition. This guy's as strong, if not stronger, than a minotaur. And he's, like, almost seven feet tall. He's a huge human. And so they're just... Him and Darsh start going at each other. And he's got, like, this huge serrated bladed sword. Looks like it's made out of some type of uh, fish bone. But it glistens. So it, it may have magical properties. We're not sure. Um, but they know that the stronger shark they fight, the more powerful their weapons have to be. Plus one, plus two, plus three. Silver doesn't even work on these. They found out in the very beginning of this fight, or of this of this adventure. So they have to use their good daggers and good swords and such. At one point, dude sees Darsh's wound on his side and just aims for it, hauls off and punches it. Uh, and because Darsh is already hurting there, 
uh, and he's weak, if you will. He did more damage, and he pops one of Darsh's ribs. Like, dude just breaks Darsh's ribs. He's that strong. Um, and uh, <laughs> Darsh was not a happy camper, and Darsh headbutted him. Uh, and then he stumbles back a little bit, and then they get back to fighting. But yeah, he, they're, they're grappling at this point, holding it, and the other guy just hauls off his Darsh, and Darsh's like, well, I'm going to headbutt him. I'm like, all right. Headbutting is something a Minotaur can do. It's actually a Minotaur ability to headbutt in second edition. Uh, it does quite a bit of damage, and they don't feel a lot of it. Like, it's all bone. You imagine, like, they got the horns, and it, the horn almost has, like, a ridge line. So it's thwam, and his dude's nose gets busted into his face. Like, it's all, like, Owen Wilson bent to the side and just, you know, starts bleeding into the water, you know, which... Sharks in the water. I'll let you put that together. Uh, but they start going at it. Uh, but finally, of course, Darsh, Darsh ends up running the guy through. And the guy starts to turn into a shark, even though with the sword through his belly, and starts snapping. And Darsh is kind of holding his head at the top as he's trying to turn into a shark. And Darsh just starts sawing with his sword. And he's like, he's sawing sideways, like up on an angle. And he's just kind of going like this. And then finally, it comes out the side. So imagine it went in the side, then goes up on an angle. A huge gash, and Darsh like, just saws through it. And so there's like this half-man, half-shark just kind of twitching in the water, and it's half-bent open. And the one shark that's still left, which was the little one, which was the, uh, the tiger shark, uh, immediately goes over and starts chewing on him, which because he's not under control anymore, and here's blood in the water, it just attacks. And then our heroes are able to kill it very, very quickly. It's still a shark in the water. They, yeah, if there's more, it could be re-controlled. They're not, not just normally anti-shark. I'm going to point that out. You could poke things with the trident. Potentially, they never tried the trident. That's not what it's intended for. They don't know if it had a plus to it or not. I never told them if it had a plus weapon because it never really came up. Checking to make sure there's nothing else up here. There isn't. They then move forward into the next area. And this crypt goes down deeper, and it seems to look like it was probably once more decorative. And Artemis, again, knowing more about temples, is like, okay, the deeper we're going, the more important the person was. You know what I mean? The more renowned dead are down at the bottom, probably the first ones buried, the ancient ones and such. So they start making their way down there. And to her credit, Dandy never misses a beat. By this point in their adventures... I don't care if Dandy's going to go make a sandwich in her own house. She's going to check for traps on the way. They don't take a step without Dandy saying, I'm going to check for traps, even when there's no reason to. She always is searching for traps. And she finds one. Then another. Then another. And as she's moving down here and disarming these traps, she's like, this next section is trapped out the wazoo. Somebody down here is trapping these, and these look relatively new. They're not like ancient like everything else around them. And there's different type of traps. Yeah, mostly poison dart traps, uh, you know, trap, no, pit traps, obviously. You're not going to fall in the water. But there's things where like spikes will come down on hinges, all the traditional Indiana Jones looking type of things you could see. So Dandy is, is a trap breaking fool at this point and start making their way through. And so everybody else is more on caution. Because on the off chance she misses one, they're all trying to be careful in case there's more stuff. Um, and Dandy's kind of ahead of everybody a little bit to, to search more. Darsh, by this point, by the way, wielding a regular shield uh, was what he would have normally done. He has one strapped on his back as well. But right now he's dual wielding swords 
underwater. Shields are only somewhat useful underwater. Dandy is doing well at disarming the chat. Too well. And so the were-shark who set them was not happy. And Dandy gets attacked very, very quickly. Um, they gave Dandy a head start so she could work on the traps, which means dude got to grab Dandy. And he literally comes in, and he's regular human size, but he's kind of on the skinny side. And this dude comes through, and he also has two sharks. His are tiger sharks, but they're a bit on the smaller side. Um, and him and his two sharks come busting in, and he attacks Dandy and succeeds. She's disarming a trap at the time that he does it. And fortunately, she manages to finish disarming the trap. I gave her a choice. Do you finish disarming the trap, or do you defend yourself? She picked the trap. So she takes a big cut. Um, I was right. I think it was crossed like her check to chest and neck. She takes a big gash. He's got two very serrated, which look like almost like fang daggers um, and starts attacking. So now Dandy's fighting this dude and the other sharks come at the rest of the party. Um, Dandy and this guy basically knife fight for a few couple of rounds until Darsh literally blows up a shark and comes marching on through be damned any traps. Luckily there weren't any. He didn't set any off. But he comes charging in to help Dandy. Uh, and while Mercy and Artemis and Mages take care of the second shark. Uh, Darsh shows up and the little dude starts to run away and he starts throwing things at the ground that start popping and it starts to turn the water inky. Um, very much like an octopus. He has things that he's dropping stuff in there. Um, which normally would have worked great except these chokers are helping... Stupid mosquito. Uh, is, is a little bit uh, helps them underwater more than you know would be expected. Uh, so this guy tries to swim off and do that, and Darsh decides he's going to dive at the guy uh, and successfully grabs it because the guy's trying to propel backwards, and Darsh goes on top of him and lands on top of the guy. And for the second time in this fight, Darsh decides to use a headbutt, and he goes, "I'm a headbutt him because he's got him pinned to his shoulders." And I'm like, "All right, roll it, damage wise." And he rolls well and just crushes the guy's face. I'm like, "Now we do." He goes. I'm going to do it again. I'm like, okay, now what? And again. And Darsh just starts pummeling this dude with his head. I think he did it like four or five times. And then he's like, now what? I'm like, his head's half squished, man. Like, there's brain oozing out. Darsh is like, okay, I'm going to stop now. I'm like, you think? Darsh had killed him by like the third attack. And Darsh is like, I do it again. I'm like, okay. I didn't have a chance to tell him he was dead. He didn't ask. Uh, but, but Darsh just pummels this dude. Um <laughs> I think it was one of those, oh yeah, I forgot I have a headbutt ability. I'm going to use it more. That happens a lot, I find, in D&D. When someone uses an ability they forgot they had and it's successful, they start trying to look for ways to use it more. Uh, that happens quite often. Dandy's backstab is like that. I forgot I backstab. Can I backstab that curtain? No, it's not alive. Leave the curtain alone. So Things of that nature. So they travel on. And this time they reach it. They reach the final chamber. We're Duron, well, looks like the final chamber. There's another door behind him, but it's it's the final main chamber. And they make it where Duron is. Now, Duron is in there sharpening a sword. He hears the commotion, and he's like, things happen, and he's just hanging out there. And when they come in, Duron is big, not as big as the first guy, Gorn. By the way, that guy's name was Silar. He was the rogue, uh, the, the, the rogue one. Um, Duron's waiting for them. Um, and he doesn't have any sharks. Doesn't need them. He's a big dude, he's fast, and he's very strong. And this is the equivalent of 
a boss fight. Um, this fight uh, really goes in a traditional way. Um, you know, the mages are in the back casting their spells. Artemis is throwing heals. Dandy's sneaking in doing what she can. When she can't, she's throwing daggers, because in here she can gather them again. Um, and then Darsh and Mercy right up front. Uh, he at no time turns into a shark. Um, but he's very, very powerful. Uh, and he's wielding a Kopesh sword. If you're not sure what a Kopesh sword is, it's very hard to describe. It's K-H-O-P-E-S-H. Uh, it's a very large sword, and it's a serrated blade, if I remember. Yes. And so he's using one of those. Um, and he is also very, very strong. So they go into the fight, and uh, he immediately goes after Mercy. Uh, in most of these fights, people go after Darsh, assuming Darsh is the biggest threat, uh, which is accurate, to be honest with you. Um, but going after Mercy, um, he obviously knows something about these guys. He's not a complete idiot. He already knows that from one of his sharks who came back, the one-eyed guy, that these guys were caught, and the dandy followed him down and was stabbing him. He's like, okay, this whole group is a problem. But that one's smaller. I'm going to see if I can take one of the little ones out. Because you can look at people and say, okay, that's a kender. I'm not that scared of a kender. Yes, that's the one. Thank you, Ashley. Yes, Egyptian-style sickle thing. Mm -hmm. uh, awesome looking sword. But, so, uh, they, you know, this fight goes on. And uh, it lasts... I want to say it was like nine or ten rounds, which is a fair amount when you're fighting these guys, especially if you're one dude. Um, he does some very serious damage to Mercy. Um, Mercy really took the brunt of this fight, because whenever possible, he targeted her. Um, because when he does enough damage, Mercy has to back up and get healed, and he has less people to fight with. Um, Darsh is strong. You know Darsh is going to be a problem, but he can handle Darsh alone. Uh, Darsh with uh, Mercy is a bit of a problem. Uh, you can chat, you can have direct chat and a special chat. They're not showing the messages, but you can end it. Brilliant. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I didn't know that. I've never watched anyone else's on YouTube. <laughs> so, um, this fight goes on. He is harsh. And he doesn't change into a shark, but he does turn into a were shark form. He's the first one to really do that. Everyone else was turning into a full shark. Um, because they can do that. They got the, the commons. They are bigger than normal sharks. But he becomes the full were shark. So he's the humanoid were shark with the giant jaw and the thing that you'd expect a shark to look like. Uh, <laughs> and he's savage. And he's bites Mercy really bad and he's using the sword and such. Um, but the, the, the sword at one point partially runs Mercy through. He stabs her through the shoulder so hard <clears throat> that the sword goes through her armor. Which is a problem. Especially if you have magical armor. It, it, that really weakens it. Uh, but she... Her magic armor is custom made because it's serenity armor. Made by the dwarves. So it can be fixed, but it's not as powerful as some stuff. Uh, but he manages to get a good punch through her shoulder. Um, and then she, it was her... That was her melee arm. She's not dual-handed. So that's her melee arm. So she's... Uh, even after the heal Artemis throws on her, she's not back to full. Um, and so she's now attacking with the negative just like Darsh is. Because uh, so, he still has that side problem. Um, <clears throat> so the shark starts to get the upper hand. Um, after that, he turns on Darsh and gets a couple good hits on Darsh. And for a moment, things look bad. 
but uh, this is when one of their mages steps up and helps. Kind of. One of the mages, Morik, yells, Brace yourself, Captain. And Darsh is like, Oh, damn it. And he prepares for whatever's coming. And Morik, the sea mage, uses one of his slightly more powerful spells he doesn't get to use very often. Because you don't normally shoot a lightning bolt underwater. But in a moment when things look bad, sometimes the sea mage needs to pull out all the stops. And he successfully shoots a lightning bolt at the were shark. Now, it doesn't kill the were shark, it does send him flying backwards, just like it sends Darsh flying backwards the other direction and shocks the shit out of everybody else, including the caster. Everybody takes damage from that. But the shark did get the brunt of it. Everything, everything else is electrified water. He got the lightning bolt. <clears throat> this is the equivalent to a mage shooting a fireball in an enclosed room. Um, Zarin had done that on several occasions, if you remember. Uh, but in this situation, they decided to go lightning bolt, because fire doesn't work, and Lightning Bolt was his next most powerful spell, other than Gust of Wind, which also does not work underwater. <laughs> so, everybody is stunned for a round on every side of the battle. Nobody does anything for one round. And then they start to come out of it, and the shark is angry, but he's got a huge singe mark, and he's literally got ooze and stuff coming out of his, not his heart side, but the other side, out of his chest and such. And he comes charging in not quite as quickly. Uh, Darsh, uh, whose hair at this point looks like a cat in a cartoon who just came out of the dryer. It's just <clears throat> underwater. It's just all standing on end all over Darsh. His whole body, except for the part that was eaten off by the ooze two weeks ago and is just starting to come back as a fuzz. His hair is all standing on end and just wiggling and such. And he's like, ah! And he's just coming in at that. And Mercy at this point, uh, you can picture this, Dandy's who top knots just up in the water like everybody's just mm, don't ever do that again everybody's just, ha, ha, ha. and the battle renews and so within the next couple of rounds they are successfully able to kill Duron um, but that was a highlight for me because I was the mage I did that <laughs> but yes uh, I helped we made shake and bake and I helped things are looking grim man you see mage gotta step up and take care of business right so, they defeat him, they loot him, his sword is, is relatively magical, as was the uh, magical blade that they got way back up earlier. And Dandy got a new serrated dagger from the uh, rogue shark that was magical. You know, she's always looking for daggers. They got a few other pieces of magical loot as well, uh, in case you're interested. Um, it was, the dagger was a dagger plus three, a ring of mind shielding, which is always handy, a potion of extra healing no one got to use, and a wand of metal and mineral detection. Why did they have that? We may never know. So they beat him. They're like, we killed him. We got it. Are we done? Like, now what? And Morik... The Shocker says, Well, whatever they're using to control Yorokodon has to be here. We need to stop that. It may not be him. It could be a different were shark. And they're like, Crap! That means he might not be the boss were shark, and there might be a worse 
fight after this. So Artemis starts throwing her heels out. So like, if that's the case, we need to be in better shape. So this is when Artemis really starts healing up Darsh's broken rib uh, and Mercy's you know shoulder wound. Everybody gets healed up as much as possible at this point. And she's out of all the big heels. She got a bunch of little heels. She has tons of little heels. Uh, at this point, she had a, a magical ring she found that gave her double the amount of first-level spells in a given day. So she had a ton of really small heals. Um, but sometimes, the you know, yay, I can heal eight hit points every round is great if you're not fighting someone who's doing 50 hit points every round. You know, slapping a Band-Aid on a huge wound. Uh, but it still helps. And between battles, she'll burn through a lot of those. They decide oh, there's one more door on the back. We're going to have to go through here. And the door appears to be locked. They search the room, and sure enough, they find a key. It was hidden under some trash. They unlock the door, and they open it up. And when they walk inside, they find it's a small chamber, but there's nothing living inside. They used all those spells for nothing. Maybe. They walk inside, but the chamber itself is glowing. And in the center of this room, on a pedestal made of coral... Glowing right or floating right above it is a glowing aqua colored orb. Inside of it is almost like like a cloud thing. It's like misting, just moving around and stuff, and it's floating there. <coughs> Excuse me. Nona and Mork and Artemis come up, take a look at it, and they're like, This is some pretty powerful mojo. I'm not gonna lie. This is a very powerful magical artifact. And Darsh is like, excellent. Can you use it? And Nona looks at... And of the two of them, Nona's a little bit more shrewd. She looks at it and she goes, it's beyond my ability to use this. She goes, if I had time, a couple years to figure it out, I could probably do it. But not in the time we have left. Darsh is like, all right then, we gotta break it. How do we break it? And they're like, really? You're gonna... The magical artifact that would take years to learn how to use, we're gonna break that. Darsh is like, yeah, we're gonna break that. And they're like, you're going to need something incredibly strong, but it's going to release a lot of magical power. Darsh is like, everybody get out of the room. And so everybody walks back into the other room, and Darsh is like, okay, I need something strong. So they start looking at what they have. And they literally go down... They don't go in the chest of holding. They go down their list of things they have that's not in the chest of holding. It's underwater. They can't open it. Um, but they're looking in here, and they're like, what have they got? And the strongest individual weapons that they have to choose from is Darsh's best sword, which is just a sword plus four, no other special uh, but that's a good sword, or Mercy's Morningstar, which is a Morningstar plus four. Both of their primary weapons aren't swords of blah 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 blah. They're not that. They're just a really good strong weapons. And Darsh's like, I'm going to use my sword. And Mercy's like, are you sure? Because you know, they're like, maybe I should do it with my Morningstar, because neither one of them wants to lose their weapon, but they don't want the other person to lose theirs. Uh, Darsh is like, no, nah, I'm going to do this. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with mine. That's how it's going to work. Uh, and there's a chance it could blow up the sword. They don't know for sure. They're going to try. I don't know. It's a roll. So he goes in there, and they close the door behind him, and they all go back up as far as they can to the other wall. And Darsh gets in there and, you know, gives a little prayer, right, to the sea god, like, hey, I'm sorry I'm breaking something in your waters, man, but they're the ones that pooped all over your temple. It wasn't me. I'm trying to make this right. And they're trying to control one of your creatures. I'm just trying to fix all that. And that was in there. He was something along those lines where Darsh is like, listen, they, they took a dump on your statue and they're controlling your creatures, man. I'm just here to fix this. <laughs> a little help would be nice. And so, you know, he never knew if he ever got, you know, 
did did it help? He doesn't know, but well, what are you going to do? So Darsh hauls off, and he doesn't hit it with his sword. He's hitting it with the butt end of the sword, which is technically stronger than the blade, really. It's not going to do as much damage to a person, but against an orb, they don't know if this thing's as hard as a rock or fragile as, as an egg, right? Darsh hauls off and puts his entire strength in it, and it cracks. And that's all that it takes. Because a sound like a giant egg exploding, or cracking and then exploding, it's like a noise, where it like, when I say crack, it like spider webs. And then, and Darsh hits the wall. It's the last thing he remembers before he, before he gets woken up. Uh, they wake him up. His sword survived, but it took two notches. Uh, I've mentioned this in the past. I'm going to just throw it in here again because it's a D&D part. Uh, when it comes to Dungeons & Dragons, when you have a magical item, this is how I play Dungeons & Dragons. If you roll break weapon and you have a regular weapon, your weapon breaks. That's how that works. If you have a magical weapon, you get three notches, which means it has to be broken three times before it's busted. So it doesn't actually break. You've weakened it. So you can roll break weapon three times before your magic weapon breaks. There are caveats to this. There are some things that are more fragile, right? You find a, a glass bottle of something, you don't get three notches on that. Because uh, they're magical glass bottles, I'm just saying. Uh, at the flip side of that, it's possible to find something that's way, way stronger. Like a magical armor. It's meant to take a beating. You don't have to worry about nat notches on magical armor. If I tell you your armor's broken, it's because there's nothing in the world that was going to stop whatever happened. But with the average magical weapon, you can roll break weapon three times. It is possible to have a notch repaired, but it requires a ton of money, a professional smithy, and a professional mage or cleric, depending on what the item is. If it's a mage-based, it's going to be mage, which most things are. The other stuff that's you know healing and things like that's going to be cleric. So it's not easy. And with a ton of money and stuff, it will repair one notch. You have to go six months without getting a notch before you could even attempt to do it again. And there's a role to see whether they're successful in fixing the notch. But I think it's stupid that you travel forever and you find this sword after six months of battle and so on and so forth. And the next fight you roll break weapon and it breaks. That's stupid. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it, it's magical for a reason. If it's magical, they use better than qu normal quality materials to make it. Which means it's going to be stronger than the average thing. So... His sword made it, but it took two notches, and it had no notches on it at that point. So it took two notches at once, which had never happened before. Um, so that was intriguing. Uh, but they wake him up, and Artemis has to use several of her small heels, just because he was thrown against the wall. Uh, his hair still standing on end. That didn't help. Um, he was only out for a second. They heard the boom they threw open the door and checked. But then a moment later, I read this. Suddenly you all hear a sound, low at first, and then increasing in volume. The ground beneath your feet begins to shake. The sound is like the keel of a ship, groaning as if it was about to burst open. It's your Aquadon, said Nona. The beast is free. Time to get out of there. So they go rushing out. And they get up to the surface, and there's no other sharks in there at this point. They get to the top, they, well, not surface, they get to the temple, the top level of the temple, and they go rushing out into the street, and they get to see Eurocladon for the first time. It's larger than a castle, twice the size of the dragon turtle. It's massive. 
Uh, its scales are a mixture between like a black and a bloody crimson red. Uh, and it kind of shimmers that way depending on the way it turns. Uh, it is not a tentacled creature. It looks more kind of like a shark, but rounder, if you will. It's like a very thick creature, but it does have huge mouth and some claws on the front, but the back end is a tail end, like a like a fish end. Not like a long seahorsey end, but like a very short fish end. So it's kind of short and round, but it's got clawed arms that are kind of T-Rexy, but even a t- it's still bigger than your house. And then the jaws on the thing are huge. It's the first time anybody's ever got to see it in person. I haven't mentioned what it looks like before. The sight before you is shocking to behold. Euroclodon is the size of a castle. I, okay, I already explained all that. Um, its huge jaws are tearing into the buildings of these ruins as it searches out its captors, where sharks and sharks can be seen fleeing in all directions. So at this point, they want to do something about this, but they're surrounded by buildings that are being torn apart. And so they have to run. And the next few rounds are them literally trying to flee the city, and it's the whole, make a dexterity check, make a strength check. Dexterity check. You dive under the thing before the roof would have crushed you. Strength check. You manage to knock this thing out of the way so it doesn't hurt everybody. And so it's them trying to make it through this obstacle course of death, of just shrapnel as buildings, pieces, and rocks are being flung hundreds of yards uh, or meters away from their source. Big chunks. Walls of building. Boulders, if you will. So they start making it to the top. The ocean here wasn't as deep as it was where the Flonatia was, so it doesn't take a long time to get to the surface. It probably takes about 20 minutes. And the entire time they can hear huge crashing and smashing as even though they're, they're getting slightly further away as they're swimming up. Uh, it doesn't seem to be getting any quieter. They make it to the surface and in the distance they can see the Chimera. The Chimera, they could hear what was going on and Dorum, against orders, decided to come in and try to see if there's something they could do to help. And in this situation, they see it and uh, the mages cast some flare spell or light flame light spell or something so that they can see them and the ship comes by and picks them up. By the time that they're on the ship, Euroclodon is already moving. They go to the side, and here they can see the top of it just going through the waves, through the ocean. And it's making waves while it's doing it, which is rocking the boat. But Darsh turns to, door, to Gasket and goes, which way is it going? Because he just came out of the water. He doesn't know where the boat... And Gasket looks down at the chart and goes, it's heading for the sea elves. And Darsh is like, hell, it's not. And they turn this boat around, and they do. They spin it around, and they start chasing your Aquadon. And their goal is to get beside it and try to, for lack of a better term, aggro it, get its attention. The trident only works underwater. They have to get its attention to get it to stop so they have the opportunity to use the trident. Because they got to jump in the water, and if this thing's booking it down the street, by the time they get in the water, it's not going to be able to work long enough. It has a certain amount of range. And this thing's fast, but the Chimera is faster. So the Chimera's booking it, again, at top speed. We had to roll some things to see if things got damaged. But they are able to catch up to Euroclodon. So what they decide to do at this point is they have to get its attention. 
they know that they have to hit it with the laser, for Anton, the magic of the trident, and they have to be able to hold that laser on him for six consecutive rounds. Okay? For six rounds, somebody can do nothing but be underwater, pointing this thing at him, and zapping him with his laser. He's charging his laser. For six rounds, and can't even defend himself. They know, everyone else knows, that if they can get that attention, hello, fun time, if they can get his attention, they have to keep his attention off the person with the trident. Because if they can't do enough damage per round to keep its attention, it will turn on whoever has the trident. The trident then, wielder either has to take the damage of Eurachlodon, which will kill you, or stop the thing and try to get away. So they have to do 40 points of damage per round to keep your Oclodon focused on them, hurting him enough that it wants to go on them. While this last person is trying to use the zappy stick, which is not a zappy stick. It's a, I, I know I use silly terms when I'm telling the story. But at the time, it was very, very exciting for everybody to try to do it. The magical trident artifact. They determine that Artemis is going to use it. Mercy's not real happy with that, but Artemis has the strongest willpower of everybody. Technically wisdom. She can use the thing, and she can breathe underwater with her choker. So they have to, and she's sure as heck not going to do any damage. Because uh, that's against Eurachlodon, she doesn't have a single magic item that's going to do damage against him. He's just too powerful. So, first of all, they're going to use the ship. Ballista and spells from the mages to get his attention so it comes at the ship. Darsh, Mercy, Dandy are going to jump in the water to fight it, to keep its attention up, while the ship is going to continue to barrage it, and the mages above water are going to attack it as well. They're going to try to keep it at the surface. Trying to basically split the damage in multiple directions, so there's not one primary source of damage, which will get all the attention. Because they sure as heck don't want it to attack the ship either. So Darsh is putting himself between the ship and the damage coming from uh, the ship in Eurachlodon. So they start firing their ballista, the mages start doing their stuff, uh, and sure enough, Eurachlodon slows and starts to turn towards the ship. Um, at which point, the ship has to keep going a little bit, it can't just throw on the brakes, but our heroes jump off into the water, and the ship basically is going to go into a 180 and come back and continue to shoot at Eurachlodon, but for the first two or three rounds, they're not going to have the ship. So they jump in, and Darsh jumps on. Again, this is one of those perks for Darsh. He's on the water, so it's very easy for him to run straight at Eurachlodon, who is not an idiot, it's, it's an animal. It's not a genius. It's an animal-like intelligence. It's an angry owl that knows it's been abused for a while. Can bite the hands that feed it kind of thing, right? Uh, I'm doing well, fun time, thank you. Um, so, they're this combat, right? This is what's going on. So, Darsh is racing ahead, and it says, who's this little guy running across the top of the water? That's odd. Uh, Eurachlodon isn't magical, it's just huge and strong. There's no way in the world any of these guys could kill it. Now, think about that. I said they have to do 40 hit points for 6 rounds. That's a lot of damage, man. 
It's 240 hit points. That barely scratches the scale of this thing, but it's enough to keep its attention. There's not currently anything within their ability, friends or allies including, maybe Tobias, that could do anything to Euroclodon. It would just chew up Draven, for example. Or it would chew up... Um, who else is kicking around? The Emperor probably would have got chewed up. You know what I mean? It's it, Powerful people, Euroclodon doesn't care. It's just a huge, strong beast. Uh, with very, very thick scales. Darsh jumps on. Girls jump in. Artemis immediately starts zapping it with the with the wand as soon as or the trident as soon as it's in range. Putting Artemis in this position does take one other gamble. There's no one to heal them. There are going to be no heals until they get this thing calmed down. Because the only other cleric on the ship was Garrig, and it's he's with the turtle. So there are no heals left, other than I, they each of the characters I think have one or two small healing potions. Um, they keep, you know, the, Artemis luckily can make some of the smaller ones now, so they usually keep a few of them in the chest of holding, but I still make it relatively expensive. They're not walking around with kegs of healing potions. So they jump in, and Mercy and Dandy going at stuff, smacking and stabbing and punching, uh, and Darsh is going at it with his dual swords again. Shield's going to be useless in this situation. He just wants to do damage. And Darsh is balls-to-the-wall damage in this one. To the point, putting himself in reckless situations to do more damage. He's not trying to defend himself at this point. He just wants to keep the attention off Artemis for six rounds. And in his mind, he's like, if I die doing this, and Artemis lives, and this works, and tens of thousands of sea elves are fine... And our friends don't get fed to the... Well, well, the sharks are dead, so that's not going to happen. But at the same time, Euroclodon doesn't go around and eat everybody else. The boats and Darstopia. All of that's worth that sacrifice. You know, his family is going to be safe. So he's straight up, character playing, and was like, listen, I know there's a chance I'm going to die doing this fight. You don't have to ask me, am I sure? If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going, I, know I'm, I know the cost. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I respect that. Good. Let's walk into this then. So they jump in, and in the first round, of course, it's first round, Darsh gets his charge attack and things of that nature, uh, they do like 60, 65 points of damage between the three of them, which easily takes the attention right off the bat from Artemis. That's the first round. In the second round, they do, I was like, it was right near 50. Um, I want to say that Dandy got an exceptionally strong roll, and no, there's no backstabbing for Euroclodon. It just doesn't happen. Um, but it just can't, right? It's, it's just, your dagger isn't even going to pierce his skin at this point. And that's the thing. Dandy's literally doing, she's using a hoop pack. She's at the top of the water slinging stones at eyes. That's the only thing she can do. Mercy's Morningstar is a blunt object. You can hit a scale and hurt the meat underneath. That's possible. And Darsh's swords are strong enough that they're cutting in the scales. Uh, so Darsh is getting noticed. But Dandy had an exceptionally... I think she rolled a 20 on an eye roll and literally poked it in the eye. It was hilarious at the time. She rolled a natural 20 and whipped like a triple damage. Uh, it was, these were her special sling bullets plus three that she had like 10 left of. And hit this thing in the eye and it's like, son of a... You know, just caught its attention. It was it was a good funny laugh at the time. She poked this giant creature in the eye. She's smaller than its pupil, and it's just it was it was amusing. 
But the battle goes on, and over these next rounds, the closest they came to not hitting 40 was they did 42 damage on the fifth round. Um, 42 damage on the fifth round, they almost missed it. And if it breaks and it attacks Artemis, she has to start from scratch. Or die, one or the other. Uh, which they prefer neither, right? Uh, in the sixth round, uh, Darsh gets hit really hard by one of the claws. Uh, and it rips his belly open a little bit. <laughs> which Is there really a little bit when your belly gets ripped open? Um, and he's back in the water, but it's the same sixth round, so Artemis is successful. Uh, Darsh is injured, but he's still kind of swimming a little bit. Hello, Bubby. Still swimming a little bit, uh, and Mercy's trying to help hold him above the water. Which you can do if he's floating on back. Even Mercy could probably pull him a little bit in the water. Um, but at the end of that sixth round, Eurocodon just stops. And just floats in the water for three or four minutes. And they're floating in the water like, did it work? The ship's like, do we keep shooting? Everything's just kind of floating there. And then it just turns and dunks down under the water a little bit and just kind of swims back and starts swimming deeper into the southern ocean, more towards its center. So it's swimming away from land. It's going into the deeper and deeper ocean, further than anyone Darshan friends have ever been. Um, but they are successful. It is, at this point, calmed. And that's what they're trying to do. It's not They don't have control of it. It's too powerful for that. All they did was calm it down and forget, make it temporarily forget why it's angry. And it's again, it's just barely above animal intelligence. It's going to swim off and be it. You know what I mean? It's not going to remember five days from now. That's right. I freaking hate those elves. Where did I put those elves? It's not. That's not going to happen. It literally forgets it, and at this point, it's going to move on. Will we see it again? <laughs> I guess we'll find out. They get Darsh on the ship. Uh, Artemis uses her last heal, which is a full heal spell, uh, which completely heals him, uh, but wears her out. Um, it was the big one she'd been holding on to just in case something really bad happened. Uh, and this was, Darsh almost died from this. This is the closest Darsh actually came to death in quite a while. Uh, he was at like neg seven or neg eight, I want to say. He was just one or two hit points away from dying. Um, and Artemis had to whip out her big heal on him. Once they're successful, people are healed up enough, they start making their way towards the sea elves. Because, you know, the sea elves, do they even know what's happened? I can tell you that they do. They don't get traveling far before the sea elf general shows up with a large amount of elves. Uh, they were watching because they knew there was a chance if they failed that this might make your Aquadon angry and they were going to do whatever they had to do to protect their home as well. So the general, which I forget his name, it's in here somewhere, but the general... Uh, sees that they're successful and basically escorts them to where the sea elves are, which is the one thing they didn't have any coordinates to at this point. Uh, Nyla didn't give them any coordinates because, you know, she's still loyal to her people. She doesn't want to tell people where people are unless it's got permission. But the general escorts them to their waters. So they never go down. They never see the sea elf kingdom. They even though they probably could have, they never go down. The king and, and everybody comes up to the surface, basically. Um, the elves are overjoyed uh, finding out that they heard about the Oroclodon and it's swimming off uh, they didn't know about the, the, the were sharks themselves but Darsh is like yeah we killed like like 12 of them and what few were left were taken off 
And the thing that we were using to control it, man, we smashed the heck out of that. It's not going to be there anymore. They don't mention the trident specifically. All that Darsh had said originally is we have an artifact that will do this. Um, the last thing they want is the Elven King to say, now give us that so we can protect ourselves in the future. And they're like, well, that belongs to a turtle. So they're like, we were successful. The king doesn't ask. They don't bring it up. Uh, the Sea King, of course, overwhelmingly happy that Darsh has saved the life of his people and, even more so, his daughter. Uh, Tethys has immediately been set free. Tethys was the boy in love with Nyla, who's good friends with Gipper. And Gipper is, in, you know, once they, uh, you know, Gipper is invited to stay there permanently as a permanent resident. Uh, the uh, the elven king is like, hey, listen, I know you stole my daughter, but I know it's because you really like her, like your friends, and you're just trying to save her. And because you did that, all this happened. Had you not have, she may have been eaten tomorrow. So, you know, I'm okay with everything that happened. So, Nyland Tathis of United Gipper is invited to stay. The Sea King uh, immediately lets him know that all hostilities against the surface are over, and they intend to leave the surface dwellers in peace. Uh, they say that in such a way that, no, we don't want to trade. No, we don't want to be friends and hang out. Yes, we're not going to mess with each other anymore. And Darsh is like, understood. We won't bug you. You don't bug us, kind of thing. And the king's like, exactly. Perfect. And it was more... I can't think of the word, you know, professional, I guess, the word I'm looking for. Hey, Patches. Uh, but, uh, you know, they got that through. Diplomatic, that's the term. More diplomatic. So at the success of this mission, they uh, make their way back to Darstopia. Uh, which takes a while, or no, I'm sorry, not to Darshopia, to, it takes a while to get back to the turtle. They go back to the turtle, who is pleased that they've returned, uh, more pleased as soon as they hand him the trident, uh, and their friends are already sitting on his back, and they get in a little boat, and they, they, they go over and pick up their friends and come back. Uh, and the turtle is also very pleased that this went successful, and that Eurocladon is no longer uh, troubling in the waters around his. He then makes it clear if they ever come in his waters again, he's going to sink their ship and eat the marrow from their bones, is the term I believe he used. And then immediately sinks under the water and leaves. Excellent. This worked out well. I appreciate working out. You ever come back, and I will smash your face. They get away from his waters. They take a day to rest, because they've got to repair some of the strain they've done on the ship. They've been band-aiding it for a while. But now they're not in a hurry to get anywhere other than to get home. So they take a day. They've already refilled some supplies through fishing. The Sea King gave them some stuff. They got a barrel of pickled fish. They're good. And they do some repairs, and then they start the long trek back home. Uh, they do go straight home. Uh, they've extended their rations enough through fishing and such. And uh, Artemis actually can purify food and water. So they've got plenty of water supply because of Artemis. So they decide to go straight to Darstopia and not to go anywhere else. Um, to which they successfully make it home after a month, I think it was like four weeks of travel. So by this point, they've been gone almost five, six months. Oh, there's a lot of travel between all these places. Maybe not quite long, more four months. But it was a lot. Uh, when they return back home, they're happy to see there were no real issues, no more real attacks. As soon as they realized that Darsh had his daughter, there's no reason to attack his island anymore. They're all looking for Darsh at that point. Um, but they go back through, and Darsh is happy to see everybody, but I'm sure, as you can understand, 
Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy are very eager to get home. This was supposed to be a one-month trip for the games, and now they're family and kids and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Darsh and everyone is happy to hear that there are absolutely no sightings of the man in the hat since they've been gone, neither in Serenity or on Darshtopia. Once again, he seems to have disappeared. And basically, we do what I, I, I jokingly called at that time the trade of prisoners, where Darsh's family comes back through the mirror and Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy go the other way through the mirror. But everybody, you know, Darsh and his friends say goodbye to each other. As always, they're going to talk through the mirror and talk through their little glow orbs when they're traveling. Um, but all in all, everyone finally gets to go home. They didn't earn a lot of treasure in this adventure. In fact, with especially with the Beholder fight, um, they used up much more magic than they gained. Uh, and in treasure, they didn't find almost anything in coins. Um, the only real little bit of loot they got was from the elven ship, if I remember correctly. But mostly, this was an, just an adventure for adventuring's purposes. It was to save people and save the day. There wasn't a lot of physical reward for this one. There's experience points, and probably somebody, at least one person, got a level. Um, but that was basically how that adventure ended. Everybody returned home. And this book is done. <laughs>